Today's episode is brought to you by Reef Builders, winner of Best of Howes, five years running. Reef Builders is a Tempe, Arizona-based, full-service design-build construction company. What's a design-build company? It means you deal with one company for everything. Reef Builders is able to take your vision and bring it to life by drawing your plans, producing photorealistic, high-resolution 3D renderings of your kitchen, baths, and more, helping you design and pick your finishes, and finally, executing that vision. With their years of building experience and a superior client experience, using tools such as online project management software through their client portal that allows you to see your renovation in real time. Whether you're in town, on vacation, or living in another state, you have access to job progress photos, your build schedule, financials, and much more anywhere in the world. So if you're looking for a complete bath or kitchen renovation, a complete home renovation, a custom home designed and built, or a boutique commercial project built out, Reef Builders can deliver it. Reef Builders. Your vision, their experience delivered. Hey everybody, today's episode is with Ken Brookings. Ken Brookings is the founder and chairman of the Expire Institute. They are a group that is solely focused on making contractors better. Not any contractor. You have to be a somewhat successful contractor already, um, doing somewhere between um, you know three million and twenty million dollars in business every year. So they're selective about who they choose, but. Uh, Ken started his career off after uh, attaining multiple degrees from the University of Michigan. Uh, one of his professors told him he needed to go work for another company. So at age 27, he became a vice president for a Fortune 500 company. Um, he didn't stay there long after he turned around uh, a, uh, a failing division and made it very successful. He decided that that, that job didn't have a lot of purpose. He couldn't kind of see the end result and 10% or 20% of his ideas were implemented. So he went on to consult for Apple, Texas Instruments, Goodyear, uh, British Petroleum, Firestone, and many other corporations. He comes from a automotive and uh, contracting background. So he's been successful in those areas. But uh, what he figured out quickly in those arenas is that he couldn't, he had, he had little or no impact just because you weren't even an employee and you couldn't move forward and move anything forward. You couldn't move, move the needle forward. So he went on to uh, create the Aspire Group. They're a great, great, great company. They uh, coach about 140 clients right now. They have seven or eight coaches. We were part of that uh, program for a while. We learned a lot from them. Uh, they definitely made us a better company, made me a better uh, manager, leader, uh, contractor, and small business owner. So Ken's just a great guy, comes from hum- humble beginnings. Um, nothing was given to him. Uh, just a great guy to listen to, highly successful, continues to be successful, continues to work uh, into uh, his 70s. I don't see him stopping anytime soon just because he loves what he does and he's great at it. And guys like this definitely need to be out there for other people to learn from. So um, obviously I like the guy, uh, we, we share a similar background in sports and as well as, uh, where we came from. So, but you'll learn more about that today. So here we go. Ken Brookings. All right, welcome back, guys, to another episode of Make the Difference. Today, I have a, I'm going to call him a friend for sure, friend of mine, uh, kind of a pseudo mentor as well. Full disclosure, we uh, met under a business pretense, and I've been using Ken and his um, company as a professional coach for the construction side of things. Um, So Ken has a very interesting background. It's Ken Brookings. 
Um, started off in automotive, made his way into construction. Uh, we have a lot of similar things. Uh, he's, he's a person that I meet when I when I met him, I immediately liked him just with his demeanor and his positive um, attitude, and just uh, just a great guy, um, someone that can that can teach the world a lot. Uh, so that's why he's here today. Kind of tell us about his journey, how he grew up, um, how he got into automotive, and then how he got into construction. And we'll jaunt off on a couple other subjects, I'm sure. So uh, Ken Brookings with the Aspire Group. I'll let you introduce yourself and kind of tell us, you know, your story. Well, thank you, Brandon. I'm flattered to be here and, and uh, be here with you because you and I have a pretty similar road we travel to get to this uh, podcast today. Um, so, you know, my name is Ken Brookings, and I grew up in Michigan a long time ago, uh, 71 years ago in another month, so a long <laughs> time ago. I've been around many blocks many times. Um, and uh, like you, I, I've kind of had to bounce around a lot. I grew up in a family that was a, were contractors, painting contractors, uh, and an uncle who was an automotive service owner, and those businesses kind of merged. And the reality is they sort of merged to run equally bad because uh, <laughs> growing up in my life, we grew up in true, honest-to-gosh poverty. I mean... The fire department would bring us bulk food stuff so we could eat. I mean, and both my parents were highly dysfunctional. Uh, my father died from smoking too much, and my mother died from drinking too much. And they were divorced, and then remarried and divorced. And I'd get, I'd get kidnapped back and forth by them. It was about as dysfunctional a, a childhood as you can imagine. Um, but I, that it was helpful in some ways. Sometimes anti examples. I think, yeah. can be way more powerful than positive examples. If my family was poor, which they were definitely poor, but if they were poor and happy, it wouldn't have affected me much probably, but they were poor and miserable. My parents were victims of life, just trying to survive and fight and stressed and unhappy. I'd break up physical fights they were having. And uh, that set a pretty good example for me. I could, even at a young age, I can remember going, whatever they're doing, that's not the right way to do that. Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I don't want to be like that. Right. So uh, that anti-example thing probably contributed more to whatever successes I had in life than, than people that have a more normal background. But kind of what uh, got me on the way to forming who I am, I guess, is that uh, I discovered that we were poorest and all that. Everybody knew about that stuff. And so I was searching for respect. Something I think you relate to too oh, when yeah. you're young. Yeah, I where, love this. Where do you get respect? And I found it in two places, really. Uh, one was sports, and the other was in being a good guy. I found out that if I did a good thing, performed well in school, did a nice thing, I got twice as much credit as other people for it because they said, oh, that kid, he's got such a rough life, look what he did. And I thought, hey, <laughs> this is working out okay. I get bonus points all the time for doing something that is expected out of other people. So uh, it kind of helped make me a pretty, I was a pretty good guy. You know, I did what I was supposed to do as a nice person and I got rewarded for that by people. Um, and then like you, Brandon, sports played a huge part in that. I found that I was very good at that and uh, didn't have many other places to get known or appreciated or rewarded or even admired sometimes. Uh, so I participated in sports. I loved football and was good at it, got a scholarship offer to Purdue to play and so on. But what I was really good at was wrestling, like you. 
and uh, won a couple state championships and and uh, didn't like wrestling, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, what didn't you like about it? There wasn't a... Well, I'll tell you what I liked about it first. I liked the clarity of there's you and there's one other person. And I always felt like you're stepping onto my mat. And if you want to do that, you go ahead and do that. But I'm going to beat you. Uh, and I liked that part. But the part I didn't care for was... You know, like probably like you, the wrestling practice was held on a stage in the gym, you know, behind there. <laughs> we'd all go over to this big barrel and spit in it. And it was a certain, there was a certain crudeness to right. it. That's what I liked. And <laughs> <laughs> they put us in the basement. <laughs> that somehow uh, didn't appeal to me that much. And then there wasn't that much strategy. There is strategy, but you don't think the strategy. You learn to act without thinking in wrestling. Absolutely. And... Uh, and obviously, I could do that, and that worked out okay. But in football, you think, and then you act. You plan. And uh, I really loved the strategy part of football. And uh, I wasn't big enough to do what I wanted to do in football. I was probably about a 180-pound guy playing a linebacker slash safety role. But uh, I was pretty cerebral about it. You know, as they say, the game moves in slow motion for some people. It moved in slow motion for me. I could see what was going on. I could think it out. I knew better than average, I think, where to be when I should be there. What You know, what it, you know, it was kind of a linebacker safety, sort of a quarterback on defense. I kind of knew what the team should be doing. And all that really worked for me. And I didn't get any of that in wrestling. You just... But the part, and I didn't care. For, I like being in condition because, you know, you come off football, as you know, and you think, I'm in pretty good shape. And then you go into wrestling, and you're like, geez, I'm not even in good shape. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is really a lot of work. Um, and I like that part, but I didn't care for the practices. I just, let, let's, let's go wrestle. Right, and, right. And, uh, so it was it was very satisfying. And I got a scholarship to Purdue to wrestle and play football, and I had to do both. Uh, and they really wanted me for uh, wrestling. But my football coach was a ex-Purdue, ex-Boilermaker, uh, played for Jack Mollenkoff there as a linebacker. I would have been a linebacker. And even though I was too small to really play Big Ten football, you couldn't tell me that at the time, but in retrospect, uh, he was able to persuade them to give me a, a scholarship slot, but I had to wrestle. And uh, we were so poor, and my father had just died when I was graduating high school, uh, that I had to sort of support my mother somehow. And even though I could go to school for free, I couldn't. You, there's no way you can do those two sports and make any money, do yeah, any we, kind of a job. We share that in common, too. So it's part of So one day, one momentous time in my life that uh, changed me in some ways, um, a family intervention. I, I come home from school or wherever I was, sports, and there's like four or five of them sitting around explaining to me why I cannot be so selfish is to go off to Lafayette, Indiana, and do sports. I had to take. I had a sister that was 11 years my junior, uh, and I had to support the family. And someone had been kind enough to arrange already for me a spot at a, a college called GMI, General Motors Institute. You actually worked six months and went to school six months, and they paid you year-round. And hmm. so it was a way for me to help support the family. Um, which would have been fine, except that three or four months after I gave up the scholarship, started at GMI, my mother announced she was moving to Phoenix, Arizona, actually, <laughs> to, to, to live with a sister of hers. And 
and it, she didn't think there was a fit for me to go. I didn't want to go anyhow, but so all of a sudden I'd given up this scholarship. It took me, I didn't get therapy, but I should have had years of therapy <laughs> to get past that setback yeah, of just sure. somehow life can seem so unfair and, and anyhow. So, uh, but that, that worked fine, and, and I could go to school and uh, work, and about six months into doing that, uh, I really loved going to college. I loved the openness of learning instead of the ultra-structured. I have attention deficit disorder, and so the structure of uh, normal high school classes didn't fit me all that well. Um, but in college, it's very different. It's yeah. more about, let, let's just figure out how to learn stuff. Yeah. To, uh, but um, I discovered uh, that I could write. Oh, I knew I could write. I discovered that I could write business stuff and marketing copy. And by just a, a luck, uh, a lucky thing, I ended up becoming a stringer for an ad agency writing marketing copy for them. What's a stringer? Stringer's a, like a 1099 person. Okay. Somebody that yep. you don't work for the company, but they give you assignments. Gotcha. Um, and uh, so I became a stringer for them writing, and I found I could do it very fast. That's an advantage of that business because you don't get paid per hour. You get paid per page more or less, or project. And the fact that I was very fast at it kind of made my hourly wage pretty high. So I was making more money than my family had ever made uh, in doing it something I loved doing, which was writing. And it was mostly marketing copy for the automotive industry. Well, to make this story not quite as, as long, uh, within about a year of doing that, starting to do that, I ended up being a stringer for four different agencies, uh, taking assignments from them. I wish I had laptop computer then. It would have been even better. <laughs> Work from anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, but as it is, I had to write it down or do it on a typewriter. But I was still fast at it. And those two things went together, that, that way to earn money and the activity of going to college worked together really well. You're like I, 19 or 20 when all that's happening? Yeah. Pretty young yeah, right to, be, to be that successful as a copywriter. Right? Well, it was re it was really encouraging, and and plus I was learning the ad agency business through osmosis of just being a writer for them and what rules are in marketing. But the beautiful thing was, uh, I just thought I'm going to go to college forever. <laughs> I really, I really, Some people do. I really like this going to school thing. I'm making this money. I'm chasing girls around the campus. I mean, it's just perfect. I was going to University, university of Michigan. And uh, I thought, man, this is just perfect. <laughs> and uh, so I did. So I went to school for a long time and uh, got degrees and, and uh, was eventually started in a Ph.D. program. I thought I wanted to get a Ph.D. in business after doing all this stuff. And an economics professor that uh, took me under his wing that liked me, his name was John Keppel, uh, he uh, got me aside and said, Kent, you don't want a Ph.D., all you can do with a PhD is teach. Otherwise, it doesn't do you any good. And, and I said, yeah, well, I like to teach. I like that. He said, no, you don't. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, I'll tell you what you really like. Yeah. He, said, he said, I'll tell you what you like. You're an entrepreneur. You're going to want to start businesses, run businesses, all that strategy thinking and stuff. That's where you're at. Teaching isn't like that. Uh, well, today I can tell you I still love teaching, but he was right. I, that was not the career for me. And we had that conversation, and that ended, and I said, I'll, I'll take under consideration what you're telling me. And about um, two weeks after that, uh, phone rings. Pick up the phone, and it's this voice that you would recognize anywhere because it was actually Henry Kissinger's brother 
Walter <laughs> Kissinger, who sounds just like him, way, kind of way down in his chest with her. Right. And uh, it's Walter Kissinger on the phone. What the heck is this all about? You know, I thought it was a joke. And he was chairman of the board of a company called the Allen Group, which is a Fortune 500 corporation, New York Stock Exchange Corporation in New York on Long Island. And he says, Ken, I'm, I've been told that I need to hire you. You need to be in my company. Tell me where to send the ticket. I'm going to send you a ticket. Fly out, talk to us. Okay, fly out, talk to us. Well, make a long story short, at 27, I was vice president of a Fortune 500 company. I wasn't sure exactly what a vice president even did <laughs> or what they wanted me to do, at least in this company, but it was awfully flattering. And, Number was right. Yeah, that, so that was the end of the college education. Uh, and uh, I was so incredibly intimidated by this. One, it's New York. I was a, grew up in Garden City, Michigan as a poverty, small town got kid. Also, I'm in New York. I got this job and I, you know, I didn't have a suit to wear. I didn't have anything. And these uh, executives start sending me letters welcoming me. And I get these letters on specially, you know, small stationery. It's not on eight and a half by 11 stuff. And it's got embossed logos and stuff. And you can tell each one of these people have their own version of the stationery. And I get them from like John McNiff III, Senior Vice President of Finance. And I think, my God, these people must be like gods. Yeah. They certainly aren't like me. You know, they must be amazing. And uh, I was welcomed warmly and... And so on. And uh, six months later, what I realized was these people are kind of phonies, actually. They don't really know how to run a business. Really? They're, you know, they're empty. They're not empty suits. They're smart people. But uh, they don't put their pants on differently than me. And, and, right. and I actually felt like I could make decisions and create strategies and stuff as well or better than they could. So it took the mystery out of that. I thought, oh, I get it. I can do any of this stuff, too. What was, what was their disconnect? you think they just weren't passionate about what they did or didn't have the, the work ethic or...? Well, these, this was big company stuff. Right. So they had the big company disease. Gotcha. And it wasn't about changing people's lives. It wasn't really about making differences. It was about manipulating businesses to add a quarter of a point here, a quarter of a point there. Uh, Walter Kissinger was one of the early pioneers, if you can call it that, of forecasting earnings, which was something companies never did. And he would forecast earnings. Well, then everything in the business thereafter got lined up around making that earnings happen, no matter how artificial or inappropriate or mortgaging the future it might have been. Um, and and he, he liked yes men around, which is one reason. Yeah, I, like, you don't seem like a yes man. I didn't have a long future. <laughs> but I didn't know any better then, so I thought maybe that's how corporations work. But if Walter said, listen, now you got, I want you guys to all write the, paint the company cars pink. These idiots would have said, brilliant idea, Walter. Why did... <laughs> and then hope he would forget about it, you know? Right. Whereas me, I stick my hand up and go, are you nuts? Why yeah. do we paint them pink? I don't like pink. Um, but I worked... My job there was interesting in some ways. They were a conglomerate, and they owned about 40 companies. They bought up companies. A bunch of them in the automotive market, electronics market. Um but they would buy them, and the existing owner would usually stay and run them, who was often the founder. So they basically were companies with 60-year-old guys who had started a company and was now acquired by the Allen Group, and now they had money. And the businesses didn't always go that well. 
so if I had a job description after after the first few months, if I had a job description, it was, Ken, we got these 40 companies, look at them, figure out which one's the most screwed up, and go see if you can fix it. And the best education I ever got was how a 27-year-old kid walks into a 60-year-old entrepreneur and tell him everything he's doing wrong in his yeah. business. How'd and, that go over? And, and suggest he should change it. <laughs> yeah. I thought, oh, I see. Yeah. Not everybody's just here to be as successful as they can, you know. There's right. huge egos and so on. But I ended up settling into one automotive company that was the flagship. It was called Allen Test Products because the Allen Group started with Allen Test Products. And, and so it was kind of the mothership and... Walter thought of himself as a world figure like his brother Henry. And so when he traveled around the world, go, yeah, I'm the chairman of the Allen Group. People go, oh, yeah, you're the test equipment company, automotive test equipment, engine analyzer, stuff gotcha. like that. And so they had uh, artificial energy to make that company successful. It should have just been shut down. It was about a $2 million division at this point, uh, losing money. Uh, company called Sun Electric dominated mm-hmm. the test equipment business yep. and they were nowhere. So it's like trying to start up a company against Google right. or something. But um, but because it was Allen, had the name Allen on it and so on, they wanted to fix it. So that became my real, was going to be my first company there, but it ended up also being my last because in this process I learned I am not a big company guy. Right. This is not where I belong. But... Um, but it was a great experience because I did turn that division around and uh, changed it from a, distrib- a set of renegade crooked distributors to, <laughs> to fa- had to, if you're going to compete with Sun Electric, they had like 400 factory sales guys in beautiful red vans and nice little shirts. And we were a bunch of ragtag distributors. So I built a direct sales force and that was very interesting because I didn't know anything about sales really. And I'd invent a sales system, which you've been exposed to in our mm-hmm. training, logical I sales. I figure if I've got to create 200-plus salespeople who understand auto shops, they don't understand anything about sales, I've got to have a system for them that right. I can plug them into. So I was blessed by not knowing how to do a lot of things that you had to sit down and figure out from scratch instead of just repeating how everybody did it before you. I'd never been to a sales class. I'd never read a sales book, but I had to figure out how to build a sales force. And sometimes you come out with better answers yeah. when you do that. Not stuck in the, not stuck in the past or the exactly, old ways, right? Exactly right. But um, after about three years of that, that division was doing pretty well. Uh, and uh, I realized, I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I didn't really understand it as well as I did do now. What I know now is that I'm just a junkie for changing people's lives. I just you got to have some input. I guess that's what millennials do these days. They care so much about the quality of the work. I'm saying it's not the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As what you're trying to do. That could be. But, I, I, you know, I, I left the corporation. They didn't want me to leave, so they gave me a consulting contract, which launched me into the consulting business. Um because it was like a two-year contract, so it gave me all kinds of wiggle room to figure out how to, how to, what to do in life. Right. What's your next move? But I'm yeah, and my next move was the wrong one. I said I'm going to be a consultant, but because I got all this education, I got this big resume on Fortune 500 company. I guess I need to be a strategic consultant to large corporations. So I went out and got clients quite successfully: at Apple Computer and Hewlett Packard and Goodyear and. You know, impressive names, working with them on the, the senior level. But if you think working in a big corporation is frustrating, 
that you can't get anything done and everything's got to go through legal and go through finance and try being a consultant for one that's even, even worse, worse. And, and if you think these 60 year old guys that have started the company don't want to see you coming certainly when you don't work for the company and you come in and go everything you're doing is wrong yeah. <laughs> they want to hear that even less oh, i'm sure but uh so i did that for a while but then i started to realize you know I, I do this stuff, I feel good about it, things get better, there are measurable results, but nobody's life changed at all. It was the same that day as it was the day before. Um, and that was the same thing in the Allen Group in those years. You know, you make a lot of change, but no, you know, there's two kinds of businesses. Uh, you can always divide the world into two buckets. Well, in this case, in business, I'm gonna divide it up as one bucket is transactional businesses, in the other bucket is transformational businesses. Transactional is, you know, we did a workshop yesterday in a hotel and we gave money and they gave us a room and we gave money and they gave us food. It's a transaction. Transformational businesses are where you get to change people's lives. One of the things you do in the contracting business is such a beautiful thing, is you, you change people's lives. It's one of the biggest things they're ever gonna do. It's terrifying. It's thrilling. It's exciting. They whip out this folder with 100 magazine pages they've torn out about what kind of design they want because it's they, isn't, they didn't just decide to do this today. They've been thinking about it for a year. And it's a huge thing. And, and when they finally get the new home built or the remodel done, it is life-changing. And uh, that's a real honor to be in those businesses. It's a real privilege. It also should pay better. <laughs> yeah, right. Because, because it is transformational, it's oh, yeah. so much more valuable. But um, there's a bit of coaching that goes along in that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Counseling as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, Mary, we, in our business of working with contractors, in yours of working with homeowners, we all get to be marriage counselors, oh, yeah. life coaches. No matter what we say, we're not life coaches now. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we will. You can't. You can't dodge it. But that transformational thing was a real realization for me when I realized I want to be in a trend. I want to change. I want things to be different because I did work there and not just disappears into the ether. We did all this work. We launched this program. We invented this product, whatever. And everybody comes in at 8 o'clock and goes home at 5 o'clock and complains about their lives and nothing changed. Um, and uh, so I realized uh, that's the key in working for large corporations as a consultant. Well, it's good for the resume and can pay well. It doesn't afford that opportunity. If, if, if it did afford it, I wasn't good enough to find it to really impact the corporation. So from that point on, I did what you know that I do now, and mm -hmm. that is work with smaller companies where you can sit down across the table and look the owner in the eyes. And if you can talk them into doing something, they'll do something and it gets a result. And you get to see things get better for them. And the contracting business is such a perfect one for us because you do noble work, transformational work. It's terribly important. It's not easy. Uh, and you don't get paid very well for it. So there's a yeah. real good fit for me and for my company to come in there and go, this isn't right. You yeah. deserve to make a lot more money. And then you know, showing people how to make a lot more money is actually not that difficult because contractors, as you know, usually don't know. You guys are a little different here, but usually don't understand the business side of the business at all. I like to say we're special. We're, we have, we're, we're pretty good window lickers here. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, you guys are definitely special. You see a big picture about business, a strategy about business. Uh, you know how to understand what the client's dream is and be sure that it's delivered to them. 
Um, you'd think every contractor would be that, right? But but they're not. They all most of them would like to be. Contractors are yeah. good people, but they're usually struggling so mightily to survive themselves and make their business work and get through the recession or uh, the inability to hire the right people and so on that doesn't leave a whole lot of time left over to worry as much as they'd like to, to implement as much as they'd like to about how to make the client's dreams come true, which is the business you're in. Right. You know, it's not about the wood. And you guys are a little different. And one out of, you know, we've had hundreds of clients and one out of every hundred, maybe 50, it would be fair, uh, has their stuff together well enough that they can take care of themselves, they can take care of their employees, and they have the energy and time and focus left over to make people's dreams come true. And, and that, that's a wonderful business. That's why you probably feel good about yourself when you go home at night. You did something important. Yeah, most days for sure. And I'm, I think we're similar in the fact that like I like changing people's lives, like our, our employees. And I'm, yes. I, I think that, that you're, you and, and, and the people that you work with, you guys treat everybody kind of like family. Like, mm-hmm. like, like you want to see those families succeed, become better, maybe buy a second home or send their kids to college or whatever. And, and that comes across in, in, in everything that you guys do. And I think we're similar here at Reef Builders because we care about our guys. Like we want them to get better. If they don't have a, a high school diploma, we're going to force them to do that or we're going to do things like that to help, help, help their lives be better, whether it be talk to them about their family situation that's going on at the time or whatever. But yeah, we, I, I guess we give a shit, right? Like we care about people. Yeah, no, I saw that in you guys early on. And the beautiful thing is that I think people don't always realize is that if out of, your, out of the goodness of your heart, you want your people, let's talk about your own people now, not your customers. Yeah. Out of the, because you're a good person and you want to see their lives get better and them have good lives. The process of implementing that actually ends up being a very good business strategy. That may not be why you did it, right? but the outcome is it really works. We have a program, many programs for our own people where you can uh, come to me. I'm the one that does that. Then come to me and say, you know, I'm in the telesales group. I'm in the coaching group. I'm admin. But I really would like to have a future in marketing. And as soon as they tell us that, they get all kinds of privileges to take time away from their regular job to attend marketing meetings. We pay for schooling even though it often means they're going to leave us and work somewhere else. Um, not always, but, um, but in the process of helping people that way, you get so much more out of them besides the selfish satisfaction of having done something nice for people. And you end up with a, you know, the, an engaged workforce is so much more productive. There's tons of statistics. This isn't just my theory, but when, when, when people are engaged with the company and the mission, um, their productivity is so much higher. The number of sick days they take is so much lower. Um, and so in that well-meaning, I want to make a good life for my people, you end up getting paid back in spades, really. It, yeah. it, it really works out. It's nice when it's that way. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Um, and, sometimes, and, and it sucks to lose them because you do sometimes. And um, it sucks to, to have to counsel or hold them accountable for things or stuff like that. But that's just part of... Part of being a good dad, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and when you get to be 71 years old, too, what you find is that these things boomerang back. I hear from and talk to people that we've had in our company, and we helped them develop, and they went to work somewhere else, and they're still friends, and they appreciate um, the fact that we didn't say, no, this is your this is your cubicle. Go sit in it and do this all day long. No, right. let's help you develop a career, achieve what you want. And you're never perfect at it. you got to put... 
survival and profit and other things first. You can't do everything and anything, but you can sort of go a long way, a lot more than most companies do, and a lot more than big companies are usually able to do. Right. I do kind of think there's a movement in that. that I see more and more companies driven by high-tech businesses, I think, and so on, where there's a whole lot of, a whole big wide range of freedoms and benefits and stimulations that uh, you wouldn't find in General Motors in the 1960s when, yeah, <laughs> when, right. when I was seeing what big companies <laughs> actually look like. You're you're a creator of change, no matter where you're at. Like when you're obviously even in your first job when you're 27, like, um, and you're just kind of figuring it out, which is crazy cool, you know, to hear about because you really didn't know. You're like, hey, I'm just going to try these things. Like, like what 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 are some of the traits or some of the experiences that you had in in creating change, whether it be at 27 or 71, like that makes it easier, or makes you more successful, or the challenges that you come across in trying to create that change because it's hard to create change. It is hard, um, it, but in some ways it's, it's inevitable because unless wherever you are is perfect, you're going to have to change it to get, make it perfecter. Right, yeah, <laughs> and for sure. So, so it just kind of comes with the territory. I think uh, having a knack for strategy helps because I can see the big picture and I can say this is where I want my business to be. This is where I want this client's uh, business to look like. This is what I want this employee's future to look like and and if you're a good strategist you can figure out how to weave all those pieces together and so it works and, and so I think it's not that difficult for me sometimes to plan change I'm certainly not afraid of change I mean right. take I always tell our clients well you gotta have the courage to change but um, to me it takes courage not to change and uh, so. yeah it takes all the wrong courage <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well and then like like one thing that I that I've always appreciated about you is you have zero ego, like highly successful man, like been successful for a long time. Like you have zero ego. Like where does that come from? I don't know. It just, I guess it's kind of who I am. I really, uh, the, the pleasure I get is in seeing things change around me through my work, not from me necessarily. Um, and I really like uh, putting my key people, people you know, Fred, mm-hmm. Linda, these people, putting them forward and... Uh, even if I'm a little bit behind the scenes, you know, pulling some of the strings, um, they did the work. Right. And so I want them to get all the credit and stuff like that. I've never needed to get, uh, maybe I did when I was young and we were so poor and I was desperate for some respect or something. But in my adult life, I've never really needed recognition. Yeah, and, and and I see that I see it all the time with you, and it seems like um, you're just a great leader, and 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 you're always it seems like you're selfless, and you're putting your people before yourself and their needs. I think that's that's the defin that's one of the definitions of a good leader is putting your people before yourself and their wants and needs. It sounds like you just you do that all the time for everyone. Um, does that ever get challenging for you or? No, and and I do do that, but I don't know that I deserve any credit for that because. I'm old enough and have done business long enough and have taught business all my life um, to know from example, not theory, from example that putting those other things first in front of yourself in the long run benefits you the most. Gotcha. So you, I could argue that it's a selfish strategy. Yeah. You're right? just smart enough to realize that. And uh, I'm, not sure, I'm sure if you caught me when I was 31 years old or something, I probably had much more ego <laughs> right. and much more look at me, what I did and stuff. Right. But I don't need that at all now. The rewards I get are better delivered by not doing that. 
Gotcha. Yeah, because I, I think we share that similar trait. Like, I'm forced to be up front a lot. I don't like being up front. I'd rather be the person, you know, behind the man, behind the man, and just letting everything else just kind of work its, work itself out. And it's something I, I don't know if you, you had to force yourself, but something I had to really force myself to be comfortable up front. Because um, people seem to, you know, to to appreciate my personality or your personality, and, and putting yourself up there before, in front of everybody else sometimes, I don't know. For me, is is difficult. Um, was it difficult for you? And if it was, how did you kind of manage that? I don't. Uh, I don't remember. I'm sure that it was difficult, um, but I don't really. It's a long ago. I don't really remember. I've kind of done the upfront. I enjoy teaching. I'm, you know, okay. just a frustrated college professor sort, and so. Uh, um, if you're going to do that, you're in front of a group of people sharing what you know and positioning yourself as somebody that knows more on that topic than they do, or you don't have the right to be there. And I've done that for so long. And, uh, you know, I'm not a very good speaker by nature. I don't have this. He's lying dyna- right now, by the way. No, I, no, really. I don't have this dynamic voice. I don't, right. I never learned how you're supposed to move your arms around. I'm just like, it's like sitting in my living room talking to people because I've done it so much. So right. I think a lot of the benefit just comes from doing it. Gotcha. And you know another piece that's that's worth mentioning about um, if the theme of this podcast is how you go from living in complete poverty <laughs> to having a pretty damn good life later yeah. on, um, and, and I think you can probably say the same thing for yourself is the strength of having. I've got one of the best marriages on planet Earth. It's so much better than anything I ever deserved. <laughs> and every day I realize, man, am I lucky. And I got wonderful kids and wonderful friends. And when you have that part of your life so in order, just the idea that I know I will be married to to Karen for the rest of my life and there's no question about it and it's not like, oh, my God, is something going to go wrong? It makes you pretty powerful. You're bulletproof. So you're not really – I don't have any need to put myself in front of things or have continually have victory after victory or anything like that because that satisfaction comes from the facing inward. Yeah. Not, when you're younger, it's about facing outward. How people, you know, how people are seeing you and how they're thinking about you. Um, but you reach a point where it's more about facing inward. You know, how's how's my life working? And if it's working well, yeah, I feel pretty damn bullet, bulletproof sometimes. And that's a common theme that I've heard from other successful people in here. Is I call it filling an empty hole. Like you could have taken your childhood and all the bad things that happened there, um, and just really dealt with that. In a way um, that you tried to succeed at everything and be the best at everything, and kept trying to fill that hole that never was filled. But it, but I think what I'm hearing from you is you're content with who you are as a man, a husband, a father, and 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 you're surrounded by so many good things. You really don't need anything else besides what's right there for you. Well, yeah, and those are the things that matter. I don't know if you if if all those things were in turmoil. I mean, maybe it's because of the way I grew up, where right. I saw that in turmoil all the time. You know, I can remember so many nights where when my mother gets home from the bar, <laughs> there's a, the story part right there. Oh, yeah. And, uh, there, you know, I know there's going to be a fight about two in the morning. They're physically fighting, and I'm out there try- when I got old enough breaking them up. And right. so, I mean, I don't know how much of that you need to see in your life to realize <laughs> right. that life isn't always smooth and happy sometimes. It's incredibly stressful. And so maybe that's contributed, but but like you and I think most people, um, if, if if you have the serenity and and so on at home and satisfaction at home in that world, and that includes friends, not right. just you know, that your world, your bubble. I have a little theory about life about oh, yeah. my bubble. 
Tell us about that because you've told me about it before, and I think it's, I did? it's true and accurate. Boy, I don't tell many people. I can tell you I like to. Catch you on a good day. <laughs> I tell you. The, the bubble theory is, is uh, simple. It, it, I used to want to change the world like everybody, you know, whether it's cure cancer or stop wars or, you know, big picture stuff. Then you realize, what am I thinking? I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm not capable of doing those things. I realize what I can do is I can control my bubble. And in my bubble, everybody in my bubble is a generous spirit and a kind person. And we love one another and uh, we'll share and help. You know, it's, a, it's just a nice place to be in the bubble. Now, for somebody else, that might be a terrible bubble. But for me, that bubble works. So I just worry about that bubble. I can't change the outside world. Uh, but inside my bubble, it's fine. You know, if I'm unhappy with politics or wars or the economy, it doesn't affect my bubble. And uh, that I can control. And so that gives me a sense of control over life that's, that's, that's really valuable. And uh, there's a lot you can say about a bubble theory, actually, and how you actually execute that. Who's in, who's out? What does yeah. that mean? Is it a formal thing or an informal thing? Sometimes it grows, sometimes it, it, yeah. it shrinks, right? Yeah, but it's kind of how I when, I, when I develop these business friendships like you and I have mm-hmm. and stuff, a lot of it is, you know, you would fit in my bubble the way you see life and stuff like that. If, if I introduced you, to, if I could have a gathering of the whatever, 27 or 35 or 22, I don't know how many people would be in my bubble. If I could put them all in a room, you'd walk right in, you'd feel just as comfortable as could be. You go, what a nice bunch of people. That's a true compliment for sure. And that's one reason I like contractors. Contractors, um, kind of a backhanded compliment in some ways, but... Uh, general contractors, remodel contractors in particular, because it's a more intimate relationship mm-hmm. with clients, um, don't know a damn thing about business, usually. <laughs> right. And so the ones that are successful, they're successful based on personality. They have a winning personality. They're authentic. They're trustworthy. Uh, I always, I've told people before that you know if you want to have a party and you need to have a, invite 100 people and you didn't know who to invite, just go invite small general contractors. <laughs> Because if they're successful, they're pretty nice people. They're straightforward yeah. people. They're appealing people because that's how they win business. And that's how they satisfy clients because they certainly don't know how to do it based on business. Right. Uh, so they do it on personality. And uh, the view I have of general contractors, if, if that was the true total general contractor world, it'd be the best industry in the world. I know, I know the dark side. But I don't ever see the dark side. You know, they get filtered out before they get to us. Right. And uh, so yeah. they're just a wonderful bunch of people. They care about the work. They care about the clients. They're genuine. They're interesting. Sometimes, to, you know, to their own fault, right? Sometimes. Uh, yeah. Very often to yeah. their own fault. They, they sacrifice personal relationships or, you know, personal time, stuff like that, just, you know, for that. So Yeah. The desire to satisfy or the desire to help, the commitment to doing quality work, the and uh, uh, their own personal needs, sometimes they're a balance issue because all three are important. But I grew up in a family where my dad took enormous pride in the work he did, so much pride that he never paid any attention to the business and he'd never say no to anybody. And as a result, we were as poverty-stricken <laughs> yeah. as you can be. 
So, in, you know, who's, had, who's that helped? Maybe he's helped some clients, but not in a big way, but he's hurt himself in a big way. Right. And we sure see a lot of that, and you do too, right. contractors. So you, you find the balance. I feel bad for, for those contractors that just haven't figured it out. And, and like you, um, you're obviously uh, having an innate ability or, or skilled at like putting together a team. So like when you put together the sales team or you put together the, the Aspire group team, like how do you go about picking your team? Because that, that's interesting to me because uh, there has to be some kind of science behind that. And it could be simple science, but... That is, an, that is an interesting question. I can answer part of it because, of course, some of it's just intuition or you don't really have a choice. You need somebody. I mean, it's never a perfect world. But I could start with how we hire. Uh, we, we have Ken's hiring manifesto, and it's uh, written down, and all managers read it. And uh, I'm not going to tell them who to hire, but I'm going to tell them, here's how I want you to think about it. And there's layers. And people have to get through the layers. So the first layer is the integrity layer. Are they honest? Are they genuine? Are they not, and not just honest like tell lies, but are they honest about who they are? Are they authentic? Um, are they genuine? If they don't get through that layer, I don't care what's on their resume. I want you to figure out that layer before you look at their experience level. Because I don't care what their experience level is, whether they have too little or too much, if they don't get through that layer. And then in the second layer, it's about attributes. And we've learned over the years, and I've learned certain attributes work and certain attributes don't work. And that also is more important than what's on the resume or how many years experience or what. Our business has gone well enough for us that we can develop people. So if they aren't quite trained up enough for that position, I can still hire based on the attributes and take the time to develop them. What attributes do you look or don't, or, or like the positives and negatives of that? Well, they're, they're written down in this thing. Um, and they aren't in any priority order because right. you're going to always balance right. them. They're going to be, you wish they were stronger in this one, but they're not. But curi- intellectual curiosity is a big one. People that are intellectually curious always look for better ways to do things, look for better answers. They demand more of an explanation about why you're doing things. They want to be more involved in the business. They want to know the why almost? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So intellectual curiosity is, is a big attribute. Um, and then the other ones sound like just a li- probably a list of nice things about people. Uh, generous spirits, willing to help each other, have each other's backs, are good at team play which is a wonderful thing about today's millennials. The millennials are really good at team play. They're very <laughs> good collaborators. Um, and so, if, you know, if they are good at team play and they're authentic in their personality and they have intellectual curiosity and they, fa- and they pass through the integrity screen and, and do fairly well in this set of things, then we can kind of teach them whatever else. We can fit them somewhere in, in, in the company. And so if they've made it through those two layers, they're going to be a good contributing member that you're proud to work with uh, and minimize workplace conflicts and ulterior motives and stuff like that. And so that's kind of how we approach team building. And it seems to work pretty well. So you're, you're basically, and we, I do a similar thing here. I spend probably way too much time with, with people before I hire them. We, they do personality tests so I can kind of figure out what motivates them and who they are on their best day and, you know, their worst day, stuff like that. But you're really hiring off character, right? 
hiring off character or screening by character. Screening by character. You know, eventually you got to get down to did they do this job before if you're right. going to hire them for something specific or can they do this job or within six months or something or will they be able to be trained up to do this job. So there's a personality fit or there's a, a, a fit beyond character. And we, too, test people and see what the, you know, can they multitask? Can they do these kinds of things that eventually could cause them to fail? Um, but usually if they've gotten through those first two screens, we're, now we're in a different business. We're in the business of trying to find a fit for them. Gotcha. We want them to be in the business. Right. And uh, we have a young man, <clears throat> now his name's Anthony, uh, Anthony Rodriguez. And uh, he, he came along and um, had been making big money in a, in a corporate level and wanted to come back to Sandpoint, Idaho, where he's going to get married and have a kid and whatever else. And, and uh, we didn't really have a job for him. Got too young, right? But he, yeah, <laughs> well, that was part of it. He's a millennial. He's 32, okay. 30, something like that. Um, and uh, it wasn't a perfect fit, but um, I interviewed him, not just the people that he would work for, Linda Casey, who you know okay. in this case. Yep. But I interviewed him, and I thought... This this kid, if if he listens to this podcast, sorry for calling you a kid, Anthony, but this kid uh, uh, hit it out of the park in character and authenticity and and that kind of stuff. We said he needs to be in this company. Let's figure out how to do that. So the tables have turned now. From does he want a job or are we trying to hire? To how do we fit this guy into the company? Because three months, six months, a year later, whatever, it won't matter what you hired him in for. Anyhow, if he's that kind of person, he's right. going you know, to be growing and changing right. positions and helping you build a business. And uh, that has turned out to be true with Anthony, who's been with us a while. How long has he been with you now? <laughs> Probably close to a year. Okay. Yeah, so they, so uh, Aspire has the um, Blessing to be headquartered in Sandpoint, Idaho. So if, if you've never been to Sandpoint, Idaho, go there, check it out. Or maybe don't go there. <laughs> you don't want too many people. Um, yeah, let us let it. us screen you and see if you get into my bubble with <laughs> yeah, me before you there. come. It's beautiful. What's what's the lake there? Pondere. Yeah, beautiful lake. Beautiful. I think the, the time Tim and I were there, the fires were going, but I was still. Amazed. That's when I was on my journey to figure out where I wanted to uh, buy buy a house out when I re- retire. So that, that was part of the mountain town. It is a pretty. You know how we found it was. Uh, it was we didn't have kids. Well, I find, but it was time. It was either now or never. Right. In fact, and uh, we were living in the San Francisco Bay Area in the ritzy schmitzy section of between Portola Valley and Woodside, you know, it just doesn't get much nicer than that, all the high-tech stuff right behind Palo Alto and Stanford. And so, you know, life appeared to be as good as it could get, but we realized if we're going to raise a family, and we don't necessarily want to do it in the Bay Area. We wanted pristine air and water and skiing and lake and small-town accountability. You know, you you want accountability somehow. If you feel like you're anonymous in a big city, you're not accountable for anything. You're a stranger. And Sandpoint, you walk down the street. If you do something wrong, the, my phone rings. I just saw your kid down here doing <laughs> so, so And that teaches them a certain sense of thing. And so I took about uh, five months or so and uh, made my job to find the perfect small town to move to. And I'm a road trip driver guy. Anyhow, mm-hmm. so I'm out there driving around. I had, And being a businessman, I had my spreadsheet. Ken likes to drive fast, by the way. Uh, yes, so, he yeah, he's a car guy too. <laughs> and I and I had my spreadsheet with all the 
potential towns across the top and all the characteristics, climate, school districts on down the other side. And I was whatever it was, it was going to be west of Denver. Um, wasn't going to move to Toledo. And no offense, all you Toledo folks. <laughs> out there. Uh, but um, so I had maybe 16 small, I wanted to be a small town, 16 small towns or something like that. And uh, at the very last minute, somebody gave me a book called Great Towns of the West. And it had two towns in Idaho, Coeur d'Alene and Sandpoint. And uh, I never even thought about Idaho. That's where you grow potatoes, right? It wasn't on my list. I had ones clustered around outside of Seattle, up in northwest Washington, and Whitefish, Montana, and lots of Colorados, and, you know, all these great places. Exactly. Um, But right at the last minute, so I I read about these two towns, and they kind of fit my driving path. You know, I was doing doing the Seattle area ones, rural Seattle area ones, and I drove across the the state and stayed in Coeur d'Alene on a Saturday night. And I thought, this is a pretty cool town, but it was close to Spokane, so it was more of a bedroom community. You know, it didn't have an independent feel to it, but right. it, it kind of made my list. Um, next morning, Sunday morning, I drive 40 miles north and come into Sandpoint on a Sunday morning. It's a sunny morning. I go to this restaurant, famous restaurant called The Garden and uh, sit out on a deck which hangs out over the marina and all these families with their kids and their dogs and loading up their boats with stuff like that. And there was just a feel about that place that while I'm sitting there having breakfast on Sunday morning, I took my spreadsheet out and wadded it up and threw it away. Not because I absolutely knew that was going to be the winner, but because I realized that's not how you do it. it it's got to feel a certain way. Yep. And in my journeys, I found that there's a lot of beautiful small towns, of course. But sometimes they're a little backward or they lack certain things. And Sandpoint was, uh, like, uh, had an international flair. It had a big music festival. Um, it met some of the requirements, like you got to be within an hour and a half of an airport, yep. a few things like that. And so you, even though there's so many beautiful towns, you start ruling them out. But Sandpoint... Um, just hit the spot. It was just right. And I called my wife and said uh, we, she was going to fly to Denver and I was going to go coronate um, uh, Boulder. I thought okay. Boulder's yep. going to be the winner here, right. so I'll right. have her meet. She fly. I said, cancel your ticket to Denver and fly to Spokane. I found this town in Idaho. Well, my wife in her day was kind of a fast lane L.A. girl in the movie okay. business and stuff. She said, Idaho? I'm not moving to Idaho. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, trust me, just come on out. Okay, so she flies out. You could not get her out of Sandpoint, Idaho today. She bonded with that town like you can't believe. You know, it was home. Just felt like home. And uh, and it was. It's, it's got a really interesting personality. It, there's it, The economy was difficult there. There weren't, especially mid-level jobs. If you mm-hmm. were looking for a $80,000 a year middle-level manager job, it wasn't going to be there. And so it, the town was growing a lot, and it was growing with people that had enough L.A. in their life already. Okay. And, and uh, they had to be pretty adventuresome because, you know, they had to figure out, how am I going to make a living? Right. And so the town's full of people that brought portable income. So we got really high-end lawyers, high-end doctors, entrepreneurs. We got a num- surprising number of people in the movie business that <laughs> jet back and forth. And, gotcha. Um, and so it's got a real interesting character to it. People are there for the town, and it's uh, surprisingly uh, 
interesting people all the time, and it's really worked for us. And we'll always live there. Now, we don't live there in the winter anymore. We live in Palm Springs. Right. But um, when the kids went away and we didn't ski as much, started getting a little older and stuff, we thought, right. these winters are pretty long, <laughs> even though the winters are mild there. Yeah. But they were pretty long. And so we don't, we're only there in the summer. But there's no pl- better place to be in the summer. It's it's a wonderful place. And, it you know, other people have said that. Sunset Magazine's named it the most beautiful small town in America and a bunch of different recognition things like that. Uh, sometimes a little too much so because lots of people are moving in. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, that happens. See, like we had a similar journey because I'm not going to stay here forever either. Kind of, kind of same thing with you. I did the exact same, uh, exact opposite way that you did. I'm, t- I'm typically a spreadsheet guy and analytical and, you know, boil everything down to lo- like a logical decision. But when I took my journey to kind of find or figure out where I want to go, I did it um, off feel. So like I, I did, it's, it's so funny because the more that I talk to you, like the more I realize I'm like, man, this guy and I have so much, <laughs> so much more in common. Like I hit, um, uh, Crested Butte and I hit, you know, Truckee and this, that, and the other. And then once I got, um, I think it's about the 10th or 11th trip I took, I got to, to Montana and I, got, I had the same criteria, hour and a half to, to, you know, to an airport, you know, got to have a direct fly. Like I can't have three, three, uh, connections, stuff like that. I landed in Bozeman. And as soon as I, I, I got off the plane, got in the airport, I'm like, this is it, man. And then I got to the downtown area, and I'm, I'm kind of the same thing with you. Um, I like the fact that those small towns kind of police their own, and mm-hmm. there is accountability there. And you have to be a nice guy. You, you know, you can't be um, rude. You can't be a butthead. Uh, you, you just can't act that way in a small town. And, and uh, I can full, fully, fully appreciate that. So Yeah, it's very true. I have a good kind of evidence of how small towns affect people, or at least a small sample size. But, you know, our children are 32 and 30. And uh, growing up, we have a very close friend who have thir- you know, had kids the same age, boy and girl, same age. Boy was a year, two years older than the girl, so very similar. And they've all grown up together, except they live in Westwood in Los Angeles. And uh, so you got the city mice and the country mice. We went to Sandpoint to have our kids. Right. They were there. But they still, and they're, and they're fine kids. I mean, they, they came out great. Right. Just but ask you. But there are, but, but there are I mean, they're, they're kids. Right. But, there, but there's a difference. And uh, I've never really known how to articulate it well, but uh, they've grown up in a world where intellectually they have to learn how to trust because naturally they're fearful. Mm-hmm. Every, yep. Around every corner is danger yep. all yep. the time, and I got to learn to trust people. But you got to be careful all the time. My kids growing up in Sandpoint had to intellectually learn to be careful because naturally they just trust everybody. That everybody mm-hmm. loves me. Everybody yep. will take care of me. Everybody watches out for me. There's no danger. Right. I love the world. The world loves me. But I shouldn't get in a car with strangers. So one is a natural feeling from how you're raised or where you're raised. And the other is something you have to learn. And I think there's a lot to be said for being raised in that the world is a safe and wonderful place environment and learning that it's not always be careful than it is thinking the world's always a dangerous place. I agree. Like it, those small towns that you go to, and, I, and I've made that same comment a million times. Where I'm like, the kids are so friendly. They say hi to you. Even people in general, like they'll look you in the eye and, and, and they will... 
they want to have a conversation with, with you in the grocery line just to have a conversation with them. They don't want anything from you. They're not trying to get anything from you. They're not, they don't feel like they're in a rush. So it's a completely uh, opposite of a, of a big city. And like, and like I appreciate that too because you could see kids be kids. Like they're, they're just yeah. being kids, which is, you know, which is an awesome thing to see. Yeah, and our kids are perfect. Nobody's are, but um, they have good hearts and they assume the world's a trusting place. Right. And uh, people trust them and they trust back. And that's a really good foundation to build the other parts of your life on. I agree. And that's how I think good, good people are built. Um, when did you start? Because I know the Aspire Group, they started off as, as it was an automotive consulting company, right? Um, yes. I started off with a partner okay. uh, who just sold that his half the business. You know, he had a kind of part of it and I had part of it. Um, and then I left that business and he, he took me, bought me out and he sold that business just in the last month. Really? Um, then did nicely. You know, did quite well, several, many millions of dollars. But anyhow, we started a very similar business and I was uh, doing the same thing, but for automotive shops. And that's because we grew up in the business, both of us, because my mm-hmm. uncle was in, had an auto shop and uh, he grew up as a Sun Electric sales guy. And, okay. Uh, he was a brilliant businessman and a real promoter within the company. He was referred to as the entertainer, and I was <laughs> referred to as the professor because we both were on stage a lot. But and I always wanted to be like him because he was so entertaining and energetic. And it took me a while to realize, man, that's just not me. I'll live, <laughs> yeah. I'll live with a professor title. Yeah, a lot more fun to be in his events than mine, though. There's no question about that. But uh, we were partners and did that. And that built that business up quite well. We had to, I think we had about 25,000 clients before we were done and about 12, 1,500 clients at a time. And doing it, the business is automotive service and contracting from the standpoint of what I do for a living are remarkably similar. They're not similar businesses, obviously, but they both have the same problems. They, they need to understand marketing and they don't. They don't know how to do pricing strategies. Um, with things we teach every day to contractors, and some of it we could just go and change the <laughs> change a few words, <laughs> and it would apply just as well. Um, I would have never made that connection. No, you wouldn't. I mean, it's the same, and maybe in some ways, all small businesses are that way, where people know their craft, but they don't know the business parts, and they're okay, and they get started, and they become successful, often based on personality, but then they hit the seal, hit a ceiling. And you can't get above the ceiling without learning some business stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't invent it all as you go. You can venture away. It's like the one guy in a pickup truck contractor. He can do just fine for a while, but then, you know, his kids are starting to grow up. He wants to make more money. He starts hiring people, and that's when he hits the wall because he needs business knowledge to know right. how to do things. And he's busy as heck, and when do you learn it and do it? And it's kind of too late now. You're just chasing uh, the business instead of leading the business. Um, and it's the same in, in the automotive service business. But um, as long as you don't let any automotive service people listen to this podcast, I have to tell you that the, serv- <laughs> the contractors are such better people to work with. And naturally, that's a generalization. There's right. wonderful auto shop people and there's terrible contractors. But in general, the, contra- the auto service people are very conspiratorial thinking. You know they don't. They're very. They don't trust people. It's like this. My kids in Sandpoint and the other ones right. in West. It's like 
everywhere is danger. You, you're trying to rip me off. You know, trust me. They have these hit-and-run relationships with clients, not these long-term intimate ones. Uh, and they don't necessarily change lives. I don't think auto service qualifies as life-changing. It doesn't have the emotional content, you know, being a, especially a remodel, but any kind of general contractor doing residential work is there's so much emotion exchanged between the client and the client has and, and the contractor and the client needs a place to put that emotion. And if you're not good at accepting it and giving a place to put it and you know, either literally <clears throat> or figuratively putting your arm around them and telling them it's going to be okay, Yeah, yeah. then you're not going to be successful at it. Yeah. Automotive business, you cash out all your receipts every day and you see them again in another year. So it generates a different <clears throat> relationship and it attracts different people. Um, and so I realize how much more I enjoy contractors uh, and working with them and being in that world than uh, the automotive service people. So I quit doing automotive and just focus entirely on seeing if I can help the auto, the contracting business be a little bit more prosperous. So you branched off from your partner and started just the contracting? On, on yes, he never okay. did the contracting. Okay. I started and did them both I for a you. while. Okay. Uh, and then after I did them both for a while, and, and our CEO, Fred Ferris, who you've yep. met, he had an automotive background, so gotcha. it's kind of a natural thing for us to, to do that. But then we kind of looked at each other one day and go, we don't, we don't really like the automotive side of this yeah. business. And the contracting business is a $1.3 trillion industry in the United States. It's not like it's not big enough to right. do anything. We, we don't need the two channels. We just got here with what, two channels. What's the there's – some, there's some statistics that I remember you telling me um, even in a recession like – like the contracting business outdoes alcohol sales, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that's a pretty interesting I just said that yesterday because I was doing the uh, recession-oriented uh, workshop. Uh, there is an interesting set of numbers that surprise people. And uh, what I heard all the time during the big recession and what you heard all the time is there's no, there's no business. There's no work. There's no work. Work's gone. I can't find any work. And that's really the outcome of not knowing how to run your business because there is a lot of work and to kind of quantify how much work. And this is a little hard to follow, so let me say this kind of clearly because it's the, the punch is strong in this. In the last 30 years, which is the only period I measured, my guess is if I went back 60 years, I'd get the same answer. But in the last 30 years, in the very worst year we've ever had in the residential contracting business, which was 2010, in the very worst year, uh, as measured by dollars, in that worst year, we did twice as much revenue in our worst year as a list of big, big industries did in their best year of the last 30. So in that 30-year period, our worst year had a big number on it. Right. Here's some industries who, in their very best year, did less than half that amount. The entire consumer electronics business, the entire new car sales business, the entire hospitality and hotel business. Now, I can go on, but you go, how is that possible? Because if you're sitting there as a contractor in the big recession, you're going, God, if I could be in the consumer electronics business. Yeah. We, we grew in the recession, probably because we started yeah. we we started at an all-time low, so, so we grew through all that. Well, and... And you treat your clients better and give them what they want. That's a big key, right, right. big key too. But um, so here we are doing twice as much. And in fact, in that worst year, 
we did uh, as an industry, um, we did about half a trillion dollars in revenue. And uh, people don't always grasp the meaning of numbers sometimes too well. So, you know, it takes about 11 days to do a, for a million seconds to pass. For a trillion seconds to pass takes 32,000 years. So just to get the perspective <laughs> right. here, yeah. and we did a half a trillion dollars. So what that means for the contracting industry is that there are good strategies available. It's not that there's no work. There are real strategies available because there's half a trillion dollars being changed hands out there. But if you just stand still and keep doing what you've been doing the way you're doing it, then you don't know how to grasp that because you've been in a business, most contractors are waiting for business to come to them and it doesn't come to them in the yeah. same way and so on. And uh, the, the uh, cliche or analogy that I use, which everybody's heard, but it fits this well, is you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the slowest person in your party. You bet your um, ass. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like that in contracting. You don't have to solve all the problems of the world. You just have to outperform your contractors, because mm-hmm. there's your competitors, because there's a half a trillion dollars out there to pull from. But if you don't outperform your contractors and you just do the same thing they all did, you all get to kind of starve to death together. And... Uh, it's people don't realize that and they think another recession there won't be any work no there'll be work the hard part for contractors is you've got to start sooner than you would think to fix your business to be recession protected people wait till it happens just like they wait until they're slow to think about advertising or doing marketing they think when once you feel the recession it's really happening it's too late especially here right yeah Yeah. You, you had to fix your you know maybe you have to change your profit centers if you're a custom home builder only, mm-hmm. and that's all you do, you're going to be in big trouble in a recession. So you need to do some kind of remodeling. Or you need to do something else mm-hmm. that prospers better. Well, you can't wait until the recession's happening to do that because every other new home builder is now jumping into the remodel business without knowing how to run the business. I mean, they do the building, of course, but they don't right. know how to run their business. Got the wrong website. Got the, remember, mm-hmm. have a... Maybe have a field staff that does fine on new homes, but you wouldn't dare put them in the house with Mrs. Jones. Yeah, right. And yep. so all of a sudden now it's like, oh, i got to get in the business right now. Right. And uh, that doesn't work for everybody. So the hard part for contractors is during boom times like this to have me come along and say, no, no, you got to start doing work now to protect yourself from the recession. Yeah. I can't even respond to all the leads I have now. I'm going right. to do that. But if they'll do that, they don't have to suffer. As you didn't, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we're, I'm, you know, not not terribly young or, or terribly old. But when we first, you know, met you guys, we're, I told Tim, he's like, "Do you really want to do this?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm like, I go, we'll figure out what we're good at, and what we're really bad at." I'm like, you know, like we could be bad at loss. We don't have any benchmarks right now. You know, we we know that that we're profitable and and we have employees and you and I don't work 80 hours a week and you know we can pay people uh, a decent wage and you know we can go away for a week and you know nothing falls apart. But I'm like, we're gonna learn something from these guys. They've been on the earth a lot longer than we have, and and all of your coaches are highly successful. Uh, either retired contractors or or they're just all really successful guys. They they've been through it and done it before, and that's where we we learned a lot from you guys. And we also would have probably never progressed. I think, and I think you and I have had this conversation before. We would have got to where you guys helped us get to. It would have just been a whole, whole long <laughs> journey, maybe maybe five to ten years versus like a year and a half to like two years. And 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 I think that's where that's where where, where you guys are good. 
um, for a guy that's really struggling to where a company that isn't really struggling that bad, but you, you, you guys have the ability to help that wide range of people. And how do you pick, um, we've talked about a little bit before, but how do you really qualify who you want to help? Because it's, you, you reach out to these people and, and you get, you got us (laughs) and we're not the easiest. And like, I'll be the first to admit that. No, you weren't the easiest. Yeah. well, we uh, some of it's boring uh, demographics. Right. Uh, we don't. We try to only work with general contractors. We break that rule now and then, but uh, general contractors. We'd prefer to only work with residential contractors or primarily residential contractors at least. And uh, we don't want to. We'd prefer to work with people that are a million dollars a year in revenue to twenty million. And uh, that range works. We're not in the business of putting them in the contracting business. We, they need to know how the contracting business works, but have gotten stuck and can't really, aren't growing anymore. And gotcha. so we're, our jobs take them to the next level. After about $20 million, we just aren't interested in doing it, usually, because uh, the, the owner's not involved anymore. And, and there's sometimes a board or legal, it's a big company thing again. And uh, we just, it's too hard to get our job done. Um, so we like to, you know, be able to look the owner in the eye across the table. And you don't always get to do that with a $40 million contractor. Right. We'll take ones over $20 million when uh, I'm convinced that the owner is going to be involved. Right. And that's fine. I don't care about the size. You know, in fact, some ways it's much easier for the big ones. But, um, and, it's, and you want to make sure we see their lives change too. And if they're, 30 million, 40 million, they have a different kind of business where it's harder to impact the lives of the right, people. Yeah. You know? so, uh, so some of it's boring stuff like that, but our whole sales process is set up uh, as much for us to qualify them as it is for them to figure out if we're right for their business. And so by the time the workshop's over, I already know quite a bit about them. You know, we've done research ahead of time. I get a report on them. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised how much you knew about us. Yeah, everything we get publicly <laughs> and whatever right. else at that point. And then how they behave at the workshop, you know, because the, the, that workshop is designed to uh, test them a little bit because it basically is saying awful lot of the stuff you're doing is wrong. You've mm-hmm. done it all your life. It's the only way you know, yet I'm telling you that's not the right way. That's hard for people to hear. It's called cognitive dissonance in psychology. It's You've got this you closely held belief. This is how we do it. This is what it takes to be successful. And along comes somebody you don't know, but yet they sound kind of credible, and they're going, no, that's wrong. You don't want to hear that. That That's conflict. People tend to blow it off when that happens. And so the workshop has a lot to challenge them, create cognitive distance, and see how they handle it. See if they're willing to, you know, Einstein said mark of intelligence is the willingness to change your position based on new information. And he was certainly right about that. And so we kind of see how they react to these certain inflection points where we know we're telling them something, they're going, wait a minute, that wouldn't work. Bullshit. That's not how we do it. <laughs> how do they react? Do they just shut down? Or do they ask a question or challenge or pay attention or make a note? So we get that information. Then, as you know, we do a follow-up meeting, Mm -hmm. which is the real primary reason of the follow-up meeting is to help the people that aren't going to join because we're not going to see them again. So we use that whole roadmap thing and try to get them aimed in a better direction and some tools so that they actually benefit from the workshop. But the secondary goal is for us to really evaluate them. We sit and talk with them and 
see what they're all about. And at the end of that, we make a call. We've got numbers. We see how, you know, we don't take anybody where we can't be free to them within about 60, 90 days. Right. And we that's a matter of numbers. We see their model. We go, oh, yeah, this would be no problem here. Right. Uh, or this could be a real problem. Because yeah, you look at our financials. Like, oh, yeah. You guys look at everything. Yeah. And uh, so by the time that meeting's over, we, uh, we know whether we want them or not. And uh, we don't turn down a lot of people. Um, even though there's a lot of people we won't take, but if we if we if we had not want if we had, hold on say that again. <laughs> well, here, here's exactly what that means. Chris and I both looked at each other like, "What?" When I when I met you, if I didn't want you in the program, right? Somewhere toward the end of our follow up meeting, you would have heard me say, "So, Brandon, when you come back to the next workshop, here's what we're going to do." <laughs> so I don't want to have to say no because right. sometimes people. Sometimes we're their last gasp. If if, if I don't take them, they're going to go out of business. You know, well, they're just going to be tough to watch. And that's hard for us to do. And so yeah. we always have a little remedial free program for them. We come back to workshops and stuff. That's but when I say that to somebody, that's the sign that no, thanks. we're not going to do this. <laughs> yeah. And it keeps me from having to say no. Right. Sometimes you end up having to say no anyhow. Right. And if somebody wants to know how to win us over, is don't take no for an answer. And I've had that happen. No, I'm joining your program. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think you're going to. No, I'm going to do it. I'll do everything. You, t- you know, and how do you say no to that? You right. know, they're, they want to improve. They're motivated. And they'll pay. And, uh, <laughs> and, and sometimes we still have to say no. But we, we're incapable of saying no, goodbye. We say no, here's what we'll do next. And we probably have 40, 50 contractors in this little unofficial group of people we're helping for free right um trying to get them healthy because you just know it's going to be an ugly what's uh, your no criteria Uh, obviously it's a character would be the first thing (laughs) it it is character if we detect dishonesty right uh, they're out if they're outside that size range they're probably out if they want to we've had people want to join or join when we more 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 naive um just to show us how much they know somehow wow that's and, a big ego. Yeah. And yeah. so, no, they're not going to do that. Are they going to be open? Are they smart enough? You know, we they're at a certain level, and if they barely could support that level intellectually, then they're going to, as soon as we start talking about unique value propositions <laughs> right. and stuff, they're, they're out of there. So a lot of it is figuring out if they're capable of going to the next level. Um and if and then now at this stage in my life and and you know we're a pretty successful company we don't need any one client um, matters a lot whether I like them or not just just like it does for you oh absolutely why, why, <laughs> why start a long intimate relationship with somebody you don't like yeah I tell people all the time like you you have to like us and we like to have you we're gonna be part of your family for a long time just like our relationship like you're, like we're gonna be with you guys for a couple of years like if if every time you see my name show up you're like oh Jesus not this guy again yeah no <laughs> oh, that's right yeah nobody and, wants that and we don't really use much salesmanship we don't use any kind of closing tactics or what but uh, when we know we want them we know it's a fit I always tell them I want you to join. Right. So when you come to like a launch class training, we had 82 people in the last one. Every one of those 82 people heard from Fred or me, I want you to join. Because um, we mean it. Right. And if not, we said, when you come back to the next workshop, here's <laughs> right. what we're going to do. <laughs> That's a nice way to do it. I don't know how I would, because I just, I just recently turned down a client, uh, dishonest, um, caught them being dishonest at the very initial uh, deal. Long story short, uh, they, they met with me, uh, came out, look, look, looked at the property, major renovation, um, 
And then we're on, uh, we got a lead from one of our lead generators and um, we saw their name come up again looking for more general contractors. Uh, so I was like, eh, this isn't going to work out. Um, after I had spent some time with them, they, you know, they, they, they had committed to us. They, had, they were, uh, they had just received, we call it the, the pre-construction agreement, but Spire calls it the... Um, PSAs. Yeah, PSAs or whatever. Professional so, service agreements. Yeah, it, so so they weren't going to sign. They were supposed to sign that the day before, and then the next morning I saw that, and I'm like, all right, I'm like, I guess I'm going to have to make a phone call. And, you know, I, I just, out of respect for them, I'm like, hey, I'm just calling you. And I didn't bring up any negative stuff. I said, this just isn't a good fit for us, and it's just not going to work out. And they're, they're begging me to take on their job. Well, every time I talk to another contractor, you, like, your guys' stock goes up even higher. And, and I said, well, I, you know, I really appreciate that. And after about the fifth time of me telling him, hey, just out of respect for you and your family, I just I wanted to call you personally and tell you that we're bowing out of of your project. I'm sorry. And it was, it, it, it's never, it's never easy to tell somebody no like no, that. Cause it's yeah, it's like, Oh God, sorry, man. Yeah. It's never easy. And then it's really hard when you know their business. Sometimes you're in sitting in their living room as you are often yeah. sitting in their living room and there's a two year old playing over here and something. And these people are going to go out of business. Yeah. And I have the power for them not to go out of business, but it's a terrible fit for us. Right. Man, those are really hard. Well, yeah, because they're going to take up 80, 80% of your time, right? That's right. And, yeah. we, and we have a bunch of clients because I don't know how to say no. <laughs> and when it's that situation. Right. And uh, Fred's the same way. We're really? Both, we're both real softies. So yeah. we do end up with clients that take up 80% of our time, way more work than we should. Um, but, you know, that's satisfying, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, seeing people prosper and grow and, and become better. I don't think there's... There's any because I love to to mentor and coach people like in all realms, and I don't think there's anything more rewarding than seeing somebody succeed. Yeah, like do well. I'm just like, man, that's that's awesome. Yeah, and and you know, I think you, when you're going to help somebody that way, you can sense it too, and and we can when they're going to be open to that and willing to be taught, and and uh, doesn't doesn't mean they're going to salute and do what we say, but they're they're willing right. to change and willing to learn and want to learn. Um, that's what we're motivated to do. You know what's so rewarding to us about contractors? In the automotive group, when we would do training classes, um, people would come into the training classes, and they weren't in Las Vegas like most of them are now, but they come, like, they couldn't wait for them to end, and we always thought it was us. We weren't teaching them very well. They'd be leaving early. Uh, now that we do them in Las Vegas, when contractors come there, we were afraid that and we're in Las Vegas, as you know, for logistics. It's yeah, for easy sure. to get it's easy, there. It's yeah. cheap. Uh-huh. Not not because I ever need to go to Las Vegas right. the rest of my life again. You're like me. <laughs> I can care less about it. Um, but way too much a control freak to care about gambling. Yeah. So that takes yeah. about half of it out. But um, when we do the classes, they're over about 5 o'clock, as you know. Mm-hmm. And at 9 o'clock at night, the room's still full of people. Yeah. And uh, doing the, what we call pop-up classes, you know, mm-hmm. round tables, the coaches do that. Yeah. And that's so rewarding to us. that they, One, because it makes us feel good because they think we have something to tell them. Right. But also because they're willing to, we're not going to go play on the strip. We want to learn more. Let's talk about this topic. And it's a real compliment to contractors. Yeah, and it's a good team aspect too. Like we're 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 all tribal people, right? We we all like to be mm-hmm. part of a community, and it it when you're in those rooms, it feels like community. It feels if everybody's wants to hear how you're doing things, or oh, you do it this way, or like you do it that way, and everybody has a vested interest in yeah. in getting better. So so that that's always a cool environment to be in, no yeah. matter like what you're doing. I've used the term love fest. I say these classes yeah. are like love fest. Yeah, you know, everybody gets to know each other because of all the group activities mm-hmm. and. Um, I started doing something. You haven't been to one of these yet, but 
uh, you know, the whole Me Too movement and all that stuff yeah, yeah. makes you careful about things you weren't careful about. Right. Uh, and so just by accident, one of these classes are, are off cut. I said, you know, I'm a hugger. I just yeah. want you guys to know that. Right. Is any, if you're going to be offended if I hug you at any time during this thing, raise your hand. Nobody raised their hands. Well, everybody started hugging. So at the end, of, <laughs> at the end of the class, instead of everybody's walking out shaking hands, everybody's hugging everybody on the last day of the class, and it was like an open the dam that everybody wanted because everybody was felt so bonded with you know you work yeah. on these teams together and and so very satisfying. It's our favorite thing to do is teach those classes. Yeah, you do bond too, and and like you do become a, a part of that community because. Uh, you know, people have reached out to me and, and asked me offline, like, how do you do this or how do you do that? Or, you know, like, like I see you guys are big on social media and, you know, like what's your, what's your strategy or like, you know, what motivates you to do that stuff? And our strategy is always, always, if we're, it's fun first and then, you know, strategy after that, because for us, if we're not having fun, then why, you know, why are we doing anything? So, but yeah, but it's been cool and, and, and like we've been lucky to be part of it. Um, you know, Tim, Tim's learned a lot. I've learned a lot, like sending our key people up there, you know, to get the training that they've got. It's, it's, it's really helped them understand what, you know, we try and do here. Cause you know, we're, you obviously I'm, I'm more the business side of the house because Tim's, you know, operations and I have that other job. Um, so it, it's different, but it's been, it's been great for us. And, and the journey has been awesome too. Like it's, it hasn't been the easiest at times and stuff like that, but anything that, that, that that's actually worthwhile never is. So, you know, like I, I can totally appreciate that. Um, one thing that you and I share in common is to kind of the love of education. I don't know if I even told you, I just finished my master's um, in May oh, congratulations or whatnot. To you. Thank you. Um, but like lately, there's all these people. I don't know if you, I'm sure you've seen on social media and 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 in the media, like, oh, you don't need to go to school. You don't need to be, you know, you don't have to go to school to learn that stuff. What's your, you know, personal belief on on school and how it makes you a better entrepreneur? Because obviously, mm-hmm. you're a successful entrepreneur, not the not the 30 year old kid that thinks he's a tech entrepreneur, but you're a legitimate, proven, you know, year <laughs> after year entrepreneur so what's your thoughts on how education helps you as a business person and an entrepreneur it's a great question and i don't think i have a clever answer for it but um i think it's very uh the answer would be customized to the people some people don't need it aren't going to benefit from it they're not they don't think that way they're not going to behave that way and they'd be better off uh when i talk to my kids about it you know, the argument I always used was, you know, you're going to spend four to six years in college. The question you ask yourself is, what could you, what else could you do with those four to six years? When you're young, going to college straight out of high school, whatever you did the year after high school was going to be pretty much useless. I tell everybody the same thing. I'm like, you don't do dick right after high school. So you might as well go learn something. For sure. But if you're 33 years old and say, you know, I never really got my degree or finished my degree. I'm thinking about going to do it. My advice is only if you're doing it to enjoy it. Because those taking three years to go back is not going to change your life as much as three years working in the right business environment. You're going to learn more. Because now you're not working at at McDonald's. You're doing something more valuable where you can learn. And uh, some people fit school and some people don't. I think it's a great place. To, it, it's like a safe place in some ways. You know, like thinking of my daughter, I was much happier having her in a in a university and living in a dorm and stuff like that during those first, first few years out of high school than sharing an apartment with another girlfriend somewhere. Right. Bad stuff can happen in college, but much less so than out on the streets and in the world. So there's sure. that advantage. It's a safe place. 
the thing that college, as much college as I had, when I look back at what I learned, I don't know if it was any even come close to comparing <laughs> to what I learned by doing business and helping companies. But it taught me how to think about business. I realized business is a much bigger and more real thing than just, you know, how do you do this piece? Right. Um, the value of research and uh, understanding how to statistically analyze things. And, right. and uh, it was those things that were the value that I carried forward, not specifically the things that you learned, right. I thought. Which is... In our master class, which you came to, mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the philosophy in that master class. It's like, okay, we've talked about contracting, we've talked about estimating, we've talked about all these things in our classes. In the master class, it's more about those learning how to, th- you know, there's a how to a executive decision making class yep. and that sort of thing. How to how to negotiate life after after the classes are over. And I think uh, college is valuable for those things more than it is what you're learning i agree like it didn't like there there's some core fundamental things that i that i definitely take with me today like um but as far as it taught me how to multitask better um taught me how to learn a different way taught me how to collaborate with people from different you know backgrounds whether it be um you know gender or, or culture or social uh economic so that's what i got from college i i'm like you i, I like to learn things um, they don't necessarily stick, but you know, sometimes maybe that semester is more interesting than, than others. And yeah. that was fine. Like, like the math side or, or the, the analytical side for me is probably what, what would help me. Cause I, I don't know if I realized I was as analytical as, as I was at that age. Like, I, I think you're right about, um, you know, coming out of, coming out of high school, like I tell them, like, you don't, you don't do anything, you know, for the first couple of years, like either go to the military or go to school yeah. or learn a trade, you know, you, you know, one of three things. Um, so, so that's what it helped me with. I, I ended up getting the master's later just because someone else was uh, was willing to pay for it, and I, and I didn't have to do it. And 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 there was something that I was interested in. Um, but I, I agree with this. I, there's some very smart people that I run across that 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 are older and never went to school that it it absolutely wouldn't benefit them at all. It, it's more of they need to check the box yeah. maybe to make the next step. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, Part of, I think, the reason I love school so much, college so much, was I got off to such a good start. After the first, I went to this General Motors Institute, but the first university class I ever took, true university, University of Michigan, uh, I'd signed up for this class, and it was, I don't remember what it was, you're just filling up electives, and it was some kind of health-related, psychology health-related thing. I get this notice before class saying that there's been a professor substitute and there's a guest professor going to teach your class. Well, the guest professor, his name was Abraham Maslow. Do you know who that mm-hmm. is? Maslow's hierarchy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was Abraham Maslow teaching the wow. class. And I thought, wow, this is really <laughs> lucky. Well, we meet in the classroom on the first day. And he says, this is the only day we're going to be in this classroom. From now on, we're going to meet at TJ's. That's a bar across the street there near his place. called the Traffic Jam. I never had a class like that. He says, we're going to meet. He said, there's a big round table there that I'm going to reserve for every class. And we're going to meet over there, and we're just going to talk. Or drink. And if you show show up for the classes, you'll get an A. If if you don't show up, you'll get an F. That's it. That's No tests, no whatever. And we'd go to this class, and he would sit on this round table with us, and he'd have a topic. And he would lecture for a couple minutes about the topic, and then we would discuss it. And that was the entire class. And uh, I thought, 
boy, do I love college. That's yeah, great. <laughs> especially an ADD person, right. getting away from all the structure, exchanging ideas with bright people, having somebody so impressive uh, lead the class. Now, they all weren't all as good as that, but right. you know, university classes versus technical colleges uh, tend to be very open form, mm-hmm. focus on what you learn, not so much what you can remember. Yeah, because it, it shaped who I am as a business person today, and it, just as a person in general. I, like I said, I, for a younger person, for sure, definitely do. I think the education without the practical experience is useless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. We all know uh, I, a lot of people like that have a lot, of, a lot of education and no practical experience. I say some of the dumbest people that I know have college degrees. <laughs> Well, that's very true. You don't have to be smart to get a college degree, that's no, for sure. You just got to hang in there. Yeah, maybe physics. A couple, yeah. a couple of them. Yeah. Because yeah. I really love science and took a lot of physics class. And man, the math would drive me crazy. Sure. These people would get up and do this stuff so easily. And I go, whoa, 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 slow down here. This is tough for me. But um, I said in a workshop yesterday, I probably said in the workshop you were in, I have a slide that says, knowledge is useless. Kind of let let that drop. Everybody's going, what? Uh-huh. I said, it's until you put it to work. For sure. And just having knowledge is not valuable until you put it. And then when you put it to work, you reshape it. You realize that knowledge is a little bit different when applied than it is in a book or in a lecture or something like that. It, then it becomes useful. Absolutely Very does. useful. Yeah, absolutely it does. Um, back to the contract thing a little bit. Like, if you were going to give advice to a younger contractor that maybe even someone that's not even in the business yet, but you know, that wants to like just got out of college, wants to start a contracting business. Like what would, what would advice would you give them run for the hills or <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all, but it would be the obvious. And that would be that there's as much to know about the business side of the business as there is about the building side. And to be a truly successful contractor, you don't have to know all that business stuff, but you need to know your business knowledge um, has to be probably half of your building knowledge. I mean, you got twice as much knowledge about business. There's a million things to know about building, but it can't be five percent. And that's what you know what it is for most contractors that they just know a little bit of business. And then the business they know is just what every other contractor does. And so the building, the business they have to learn is the stuff that's not what every contractor does. I mean, it's learning what marketing is. You just you you're gonna struggle all your life in contracting if if you think marketing is just having enough leads to keep the guys busy. And that's right. what most contractors think. They're not gonna survive very well in recessions. They can't turn down bad jobs. It just life's tough. Life's tough. You don't know what. I sit in these, you know, stand up in front of these classes and. I know half of the people there don't even know what a margin means, let alone how they would run their business to or how op- to calculate to it. optimize it. And uh, so you, you just got to learn those things. And it's every bit as important as learning to be a builder. So while you're learning to be a builder, you're working on a crew, you're involved with somebody else, you're hopefully hooked up with a smart owner, be taking classes, taking classes. And the classes don't need to be real general. That's one of the problems. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need to go get an MBA because, yep. you know, on the journey to get an MBA, you had to look at international distribution <laughs> strategies. <laughs> right. Well, that doesn't matter a whole lot to contractors. No. But um, you need to you need to learn how business – you need to sort through that and find the parts that will apply. 
I think now there's a lot of certificate programs out there, like UC Berkeley yeah. has some, uh, and I've seen some come. Actually, Harvard has has a few as well that kind of have come across my desk. Because for uh, for a newer, you know, younger man, woman, or whatever, um, they're not going to be able to get into a program like like the Aspire Group because they don't their revenue's not not, mm-hmm. not big enough. For, so for that person to be able to kind of muddle, muddle their way through to the point to where they can get some advanced help. Because I, I think that's what I would call you guys. Like you guys aren't you guys aren't for the beginner. We're not. You Definitely guys are for not. you know contractors that that are advanced. Because some contractors will never hit a million dollars worth of revenue. You know, and like I like you know we know that that doesn't mean anything, but they 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 can't even generate enough business to get there. They're stuck in that you know a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar per job kind of deal. So that's how I always wonder if if if. If I was going to tell someone like what they would do, like the advice I always tell a younger guy, because younger uh, guys in public safety ask me all the time, like go get on a framing crew, learn 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 a trade that way, and then you're going to have to learn the business side of it. And I think the business side is trickier for a contractor to learn than it is to learn a trade, because you have so many guys that are good tradesmen and poor businessmen. Like there's definitely a disconnect on like. How do I learn this business side? And I think a lot of the stuff that what you guys teach is, um, you can take a lot of it and, and and take it take it to another industry, right? Yeah, no question. About Service it. driven, I think for sure. Yeah, it would. You know, I've done uh, consulting in, in my life for almost every kind of business you can think of in, in my life, and the principles tend to be the same. Usually, the problems tend to be the same, based on the size of the business. If it's a small business, I can tell you what their problems are going to be. Because what they understand about business. If they're a big business, I'm going to tell you what their other set of problems are going to be. Um, But it doesn't matter so much, I don't think, whether it's the restaurant business, the contracting business, the automotive business, the problems become similar. You you know, you got to manage margins and out revenue. You got to know how to do marketing. You got to know how to build staff. And, you know, just there's a bunch of fundamentals, boot camp kind of stuff. Right. Um, But you're, you're right. When you join the framing crew, when you get into the business, uh, you're surrounded by people that are craftsmen who don't know a damn thing about business. So you don't know you don't know what you don't know. They don't know what they don't know. Right. So there's nothing in there to go. Wait, there's a whole set of things. The older guys you're working with are going. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but somehow you know. Yeah. I mean, like right now is a good time. If you're not going to make a ton of money in this business right now, when are you going to make a ton of money? <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> and so we get more and more contracts going. I know I'm missing something. Right. I, this isn't right. Yeah. Every, everybody else seems to be making a lot of money but me. Yeah. For sure. And you do this really important transformational work, and it's a boom time, and you're in a boom market. Something's got to be wrong here yeah. if you're not making a lot of money or ha- and having a lot of fun. And what is it, I think, I'm trying to run back these slides. What's what's the average net or actual of of, of the average contractor? 3%? 1.3. 1.3. The, current, the uh, construction industry, I don't know. CFMA, Construction Financial Management Institute, something like that, mm-hmm. does that annual study. Right. And so nationally, it's 1.3. In our workshops, because people that come to workshops are trying to learn, they're generally a higher cut, plus we don't take the tiny ones. you got to be over a million bucks usually, uh, is, is more like 2.4%. But what's the difference to make? 1.3, 2.4, you're, basic, <laughs> you're, you're running a break-even business. Yeah. It, should, it should be 10, 12% bottom line yeah at least 
And, uh, but people don't know that because they don't associate with other contractors that mm -hmm. have that success. It's, it's so rare to have a, a reef or something where they know right. how to make money, Thanks. know how to treat customers, know right. how to treat their employees. That's not the rule. That's definitely the exception. I was I was amazed. I'm like, 1.3? I'm like, what are these guys doing? I'm like, why would I even be in this business? I'm like, you're you're just you're barely hanging in there. You have one bad job and now now you're point zero one percent or whatever. The workshop I did yesterday was a kind of a first. Um, the average net operating profit in that class was point one. Ooh. I've never, I've had below zero, but I've never <laughs> had a point one. And that's kind of like, like another fallacy that I think uh, some some of the clients out there think that every contractor is out there, you know, they're, they're like the money trucks are leaving the office every day. That's exactly right. Every contractor thinks they're the one with all these problems struggling right. and everybody else is doing better, especially ones with some good revenue. They go, yeah. oh yeah, I want to be like that someday. And you know, we're like the doctors that have read their EKG. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, you don't want to be Yeah, like no, that. it's actually not that good <laughs> so, to, to, to do that. And you guys, um, have and I think don't I think most contractors and, and you can probably test this they don't understand um, the job mix has a lot to do how your cash flow works and how your business runs and like you guys have have a really good way of, of speaking to that and kind of helping people understand that you know it's very true of I think all small business this would be good advice for I think all small business people is that Everybody thinks they know what their problem is. That's step one. Oh, yeah, I know what my problem If I could just get one more job a year, if I could just get the right field manager, whatever, they got one problem. Even though if they look back at their history, they find they've always had some one problem and they've solved that one problem and nothing really changes, but that still they have this philosophy right. of, oh, you could just solve that problem. And so they come into the workshop usually telling, you know, I know what my problem is. Because I ask them in the morning, I go around the table and I say, you know, what can we help you with? Or is there a particular reason you came? And well, I know my problem is blank. And the reality, and what I tell them in the workshop before it's over is, let me tell you all what's hard about getting from where you are now to what those bright and shiny dreams were that you had when you started in business. Let me tell you what, what's hard about getting from there, from where you are now to there. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What's hard is there's 94 things. <laughs> There's not two things. Right. If there were two things, you'd go learn them. Right. If there were five things, you'd go learn them. But there's like 94 things or 106 things, some big number. Right. And to run your business every day and learn those things and know that you've learned them and know that you've implemented them and know that it's staying implemented, that's what's hard. And it's really true. We've never had a client where we go, oh, game's over. We can't do that one. They can't do that. They can always... but. Sometimes they get overwhelmed by the amount of things. Right. And uh, it's one reason it's a two-year program. You know, yeah, you guys have a good way of spoon-feeding it out to people. And, uh, but that really is the case, and I think that's the case in all businesses. Is it job mix? Sure it is. Is it the right comp plans? Absolutely. Is it knowing how to do enough marketing so that you can only take good jobs and differentiate yourself from the competition? Yes, of course. It's But it's there's a whole bunch more, and it's all right. those things. And getting all those pieces lined up to all face in the same direction and mm -hmm. reinforce each other rather than conflict with each other. If you've never had any business training or not getting a little help from somebody, how in the world are you can do that? The answer is you don't. So all of a sudden you go, geez, I'm 10 years from wanting to retire. This is not where I expected to be. Um, you get the whole hamster cage problem. So, because the things aren't hard to do. Right. And a small slice of our clients, like you, 
either had learned enough about business or were smart enough to just logically figure it out. Right. And like we talked about at the beginning of this, sometimes not knowing how to do something but being smart enough to figure it out from scratch comes up with a better answer than, especially in contracting, because what contracts do is how's everybody else do it? Right. Well, how are they doing that? They do the this what we call the this and that strategy. Let, <laughs> let, let's try this. Oh, that's not, let's try that. Yeah. Okay, how about this? <laughs> and ho- hope that one of them works. Yeah, and, not, and not measure anything. Right? Not measure yeah. anything. <laughs> not know what's working. Right. But hope is a poor strategy. Oh, yeah. I say that too. Hope is not a strategy. Um, we I talk about this often, but how, how much... Um, do you see in what you do and teaching other people is 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 pattern recognition and and identifying a pattern because you you talked about big corporations are going to have these problems and you know small companies are going to have these problems like obviously there's a pattern that, that you look for and see um, how how much of that is teachable versus how much of that is just your innate ability to be like oh yeah I've seen this before I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do that well. It's it's a great question and a great topic because the answer is as much as we can because they can learn more if they can learn what we call inflection points. If they see this, this is what's happening because uh, they're not going to be as analytical as we'd like them to be right. often enough and they're not going to track numbers accurately enough and so they need to have something to go. And that's why we do the uh, Spire Intelligence System the way it is. Mm-hmm. You know, It triggers a problem and then you dig down and solve yep. it. So that's you know, pattern recognition. When this happens, um, you, you know, maybe you don't know the exact answer, but you know, at least go where to dig. Right. Um, and so we do that as much as we, we possibly can. Cause it, you know, it, the, the thing for us is not so much knowing what they need to know, cause we know what they need to know. Don't mean to be immodest, but we, right, yeah, we, we, sure. we got all the answers. Are, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, you guys are experts in what you do. How do you transfer it to them in a useful way? With their limited amount of time, we assume every contractor that comes into the program has no time and no money. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes that's wrong, and they have some money, but right. they never have time. Right. So yet we still have to get some of their time and do that. And sometimes you do that through layering. You get their margins up so they can hire somebody to work in the business so they mm-hmm. can work on it, that kind of thing. But um, you know, trying to teach them so that it sticks and it makes sense and the pieces gel and fit together is the much harder part for us to do. Uh, if we're not on our toes and doing the job right, it's a bunch of individual facts. Um, we get people come back to a second workshop often. You know, They'll come, they won't sign up. A year later, they're in another workshop. And it's the same workshop. Same. I'll probably even right. tell the same jokes. <laughs> and they'll, they'll, they'll come up to me and say, Love the new workshop. <laughs> we, just, we just finished developing this one. But uh, it's because uh, the first time, it's it's just a bunch of pieces. Right. Second time around or after they've done the workshop, they come back, they see the whole picture. And this, oh yeah, this piece goes over here in this corner. And this little bitty gear, it drives this great big important wheel. And they're able to learn more because of the pattern recognition now of kind of knowing what the big picture looks like. But... So many contractors don't even have a clue what business looks like. Right. You know, if they don't know what a margin is, if they think marketing is just getting a few leads and uh, that kind of thing, and they, the only way they can win is to get more revenue, no matter what, how lousy their margin is, then uh, how are they going to break out of that? How are they going to get that picture that that isn't what business is? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the much harder part for us. Um, 
you know, we try to do the classes so that the classes are about fundamentals. And then the coaching that follows, you leave the class, you work with your coach, your coach personalizes those fundamentals to your particular situation and tries to, we talk a lot about these inflection points and what uh, what triggers you thinking about this? When you see this, you know this is a problem. We'd like to say, just become analytical, look at all your numbers, and you know, but we know that's not <laughs> yeah. going to get the job done. Um, so it's uh, the conceptual parts of it are both the most enjoyable part of teaching and the hardest part to transfer knowledge in packages that are useful as opposed to transfer knowledge as a bunch of facts, which is, of course, what you get in school, a bunch of facts. Yeah. Different class. You take this class in the morning and that class in the other. There's no relationship between mm-hmm. them, and uh, so we have an opportunity to not be that. But it's it's hard to not be that to put it together in a logical order because you got a bunch of different people. When you're coaching them, you can deal with them as individuals. But in the classes, it's a little bit tougher because some people know a little, some know a lot, some know nothing. Yeah, varying degrees of of expertise and intelligence and. Uh, education and everything, right? In yeah. there, like, how do you guys um, match your your clients to your coaches? Well, either Fred or I do that, um, or whoever signs them up. Right, uh, right now, uh, Brent Baker, who you know, mm-hmm. yep. is is become a workshop presenter and and stuff. Brilliant accounting guy. Yeah, yeah, too he, too brilliant actually. Yeah, he, he knows he knows the numbers, yeah. but I learned a lot from Brent because I, you know, and, and even I had to meet with our accountants and um, and our accountants they do real estate and and, and construction accounting and uh, they're smart people, uh, younger people, smart people. And they're they're like, man, that dude. Whew. He goes he goes. I've never met another guy that knows more about gap accounting than that guy. <laughs> No, he's he's a frustrated CPA. That's, yeah, for sure. that's, for sure. that's where he should have been. Yeah. But uh, so whoever signs up the client, myself, Fred, or now Brent, um, we pick the coach. Gotcha. And we pick the coach more based on personality than mm-hmm. anything else because the coaches, you know, while you do have your coach, as you know, it's a team coaching effort as well. Yeah, you, for sure. you work with all of them at the classes. If you've got a uh, estimating issue, then your coach is going to go, listen, I'm going to have you work with Coach Jeff the next couple of sessions because he's our estimating expert, that sort of thing. So you end up working with all of them. They all pull from the same pool of knowledge. They've all got tons of experience as a contractor. So it really comes down to who's the best personality fit. Right. Who That client's going to want to go fast. That client's uh, going to need to be handled very carefully because they're going to get overwhelmed too fast. Uh, this client has zero time, and we've got to find a way to get them some time before they can pay attention who's a better coach for that. So gotcha. we pick like that. Um, we change coaches sometimes. I think we change coach once for you. Because um, you had Frank. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, yeah. My apologies. <laughs> that was a mistake. Frank, Frank, for great, wonderful man. Yep. But he's found his true calling. He's a beekeeper now. Yeah, I met him. I met him in Sandpoint. He just came in to say hi. Yeah. I was like, that was going to be our coach right there. Yeah. And he knows a lot about contracting. He was a high-end, very successful contractor. But that doesn't mean that he's necessarily the right coach for everybody. It wasn't for you. But um, we we rarely get it wrong anymore. Maybe one out of every 75 assignments or something, we get it wrong. But then we let the coach pick the next time because now it, on day one, the coach doesn't have any idea or the client doesn't have any idea what the program's like. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot more sense of what their business is like. Right. So yeah, we, It's very mysterious until you get into yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> so we can make a better match. But if we get it wrong and for either, you know, 
coach gets hit by a bus, which fortunately hasn't happened yet, but or the client calls me up and goes, listen, I'm just not feeling it. Right. With this, then we'll let them pick because they know all the coaches and they know what the program's like and they've worked with all of them. So they're in a better position to pick. Plus, truthfully, we may think it's their fault they're not getting along with their coach. So if they pick, <laughs> it'll be better. Yeah, but exactly. um, so that, that's how we do the match. It's more personality. Um, and then the coach, we do a lot of internal training, trying to how do you figure out whether the client wants to be nagged, pushed, encouraged, enthused, um, cheered on? What, what's the mm-hmm. motivational method to keep, we call it keeping you in your lane. We want to keep client in their lane. They can swerve all around in the lane. Nobody has to drive right straight down the middle. But if they swerve out of the lane and into the ditch, then they're not going to get to their goal. I would have paid money to be a fly on the wall to hear what they said about us. <laughs> we'll never get that. Never get that. No, we, we, we had a great experience. Like I said, I, I love it. Um, you know, it was it was really beneficial for Tim as well because a lot of the stuff that I've been saying, you guys just hit him over the head with a sledgehammer <laughs> with it. So I'm like, perfect. Someone else is telling him besides me. So that, that was that that was super beneficial. Um, I think uh, I, I think. The greatest thing that that probably most people in those rooms learn is they're not alone. Yes, very true. In there, because I, I there I think from talking to some of the people that uh, in those workshops, um, not that we're any special, not that we're special, not that we're different, not that we're better than anybody, but they some of those people were really desperate to have someone just say, "Hey, man, this is this is the way. Let me show you the way. Like it's going to be okay." I know things are goofy right now, and you've been not doing this well for 15 years. But we're 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 gonna help you with this stuff, and and, and you can just see as as things clicked in their head or concepts were introduced during workshops, stuff like that. You could just see them like like physically calm down. Like yeah. they're like, all right, like this is gonna be okay. Like I don't have to like work 80 hours a week and make no money and you know do stuff like that. So so that was always super cool for me to watch it because I, I was you know me I'm I'm very similar to you. I'm very aware of what's going on around me and I'm reading body language and tone and everything at 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 all times the people so to see some of these older contractors that, that that honestly were a lot better than 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 what reef builders is as far as technically because they've been doing it longer to struggle like that was tough because like oh dude you don't ever want to be in that situation but to watch their like like their eyes um get bigger and and the lights go on and then even being in like some of the advanced classes to hear how they're prospering now versus you know like mm-hmm. you know like a year to like a year and a half ago. I couldn't imagine um, a better um, you know business to be in. I've I've of, I've often uh, thought about getting a professional coaching certification, not necessarily for the contracting world or stuff like that, because I do like to help people as well. So it's got to be a, a rewarding thing. How much how much longer do you think you're going to do it? Well, you know, I did retire once. Yeah, I'm like no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and what I learned when I retired <clears throat> was. Um, not that I was bored, wasn't the least bit bored. My wife and I like to travel all over the world, and no, no border problem. But I missed certain parts of the business. I missed, you know, the frustrated college professor. I missed the teaching. I like that. Um, I have a, a wonderful senior management team, five ma- senior managers to work with. It's an honor to work with them, and I learn from them all the time. And so I really missed being captain of that little team. Right. Uh, but most of all, I miss seeing people's lives change. And, and I thought, I'm not going to sell the business, so I'll still be affecting their lives. But when I'd see it on a report, 
you know, here's where they were, here's where they are. It doesn't matter how successful they've become, it didn't work if I didn't meet them in the workshop, meet them in the first classes, see them see them grow and change. It didn't, whatever that emotional need was, wasn't getting met. So I unretired, but as a much smarter guy, um, knowing what parts I wanted to do. And if it wasn't one of those kind of three parts, or maybe there's four or five if I thought about it, but it was one of those parts and I didn't care about it. And I also realized being away from the business more as I was that my staff ran things better than I did. I thought as soon as I was, <laughs> if I'm not around, everything's going to go to hell. Right. And that was far from the truth. <laughs> so operationally, I don't do anything. Right. I mean, I live in Palm Springs six months of the year. I don't even set foot in the office. Right. And if you were to ask me what's our lease rate on the office there on the lake in Sandpoint, I'd, I don't have You're any care, idea. Right? And, I, and I don't want to have an You're idea. Right. Linda manages the operations and the finance and the HR stuff better than I ever could. Right. And uh, Fred's out there making sure that we are successful for clients all the time. And, and uh, the coaches could not be more dedicated to, I mean, they're just a, a unique breed, these coaches, about helping people. You know, mm-hmm. you see it at the workshops. Yeah, I agree. They st- we start at 5 in the morning. We worked at 11 at night in those uh, workshop days. And sometimes it's a full week, you know, where we have an advanced class and a launch class in the same week. And I don't ever tell them to do that. Right. They just do that. And so it's really an honor to be part of all that. And, I, and I'm happy to be part of it, but I'm happy to not have what I call trailing edge things. Oh, yeah, i got to make that call. i got to follow right. up with that and have that meeting, you know, just do the parts I like. So as long as I can <clears throat> stay in that mode, I don't have any plans to stop doing yeah. this. I, I like these parts. And why would you? I don't think I would either. Like like, like people ask me, you know, there's certain parts of, 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 of the contracting business that I could really care to be in or not be in or whatnot but yeah. there, there are certain parts that i love being in like like i love the interaction with the people and i love obviously watching something being built you know f- you know from the ground up from dirt and stuff like that like like the remodel side for me it's just it's really interesting for me at this point um it's cool because i get to be part of that still but i get to be part of it like like you said like uh when 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 i, when I want to show up to a job site to see what we're doing or uh, to to meet a client that a project manager says, hey, you should really meet this guy. He's an ex-military guy, and blah blah blah. And, blah, blah. and then I, I get to learn more about their lives, but I'm really not any part of the project. I'm not managing it. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not on the operations side. Luckily, I have Tim. You know that that like runs that operation side, and I'd like to be. I like to have my hands kind of everywhere, but not have to have them everywhere at at the same time so i could i can fully appreciate that i'll obviously i'm i'm st- i feel like i'm still pretty young in 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 my construction career even though we've been doing it for a while um i i think we're we're, we're going to be around and, and and we look forward to working with you guys as far as um um you know helping us with with the transition of, of, of selling the business one day or, or or bringing in some of our key employees to you know for for some ownership stuff and and we've made some gains like this year i don't, I don't even think i told you but we we're able um, to buy our own uh, piece of uh, commercial land that we're going to build our own offices on. So you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, we we bought it um, about three months ago. It's in a, it's I can ride my skateboard to work one day because because mm-hmm. it'll be close to the house and I have six more years in, in public safety and and um, I, I forgot to tell you that you you told me something. I don't and I don't even know if you remember. We went to lunch once when we were in Vegas and. Um, you're asking me what I was going to do, like on the public safety. So I said, "Well, I, some people told me that I need to take chief's test and this, that, and the other." And I'm thinking about it because blah blah blah. And um, you said, 
yeah, I don't ever, I don't ever see you doing that. And I said, and I, asked you, I asked you why. You're like, I don't see you as one that really likes the bureaucracy very much. And that stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, it, it stuck with me big time because, because when it came um, to make that go, no go decision, on, like, like on something like that, I, I've just kind of sat back and thought about, okay, like, is this for me? And you were actually the number one thing that jumped in my head. I'm like, that dude, <laughs> right on the head. I'm like, and, and as I saw further behind the curtain of government and, 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 Bureaucracy. I'm like, I, yeah, I'm like, I want no part of that. Like, I'll, I'll either pull my hair out and bring it home with me, or I'll become just as silly as they are, and I have no interest in 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 and uh, in, 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 uh, being either of those things. So, so I owe you a thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, the idea of totally retiring, anyhow, is such a terrible fit. I used to fantasize that, well, I'll retire and do uh, charity stuff. Right. A wonderful thought. I'd love that. It fit me in every way, except. When you get involved with nonprofit ventures, it's the worst bureaucracy because <laughs> everybody has equal voice. Oh, boy, yeah. So you might have, like, the festival at Sandpoint, the big, yep. long music mm-hmm. festival we have. I tried to participate in that. And uh, so if you're on the marketing committee or something, nobody knows anything about marketing. I know a lot about marketing, but everybody's voice is equal. So you try to move things along to a certain point, and then one person will go... Well, you know, I think, and and you got to give it full full value. Talk about it. Sometimes they're great ideas. Sometimes people that don't know about that particular area come up with great. But usually, it's unrealistic. Yeah, and, it's a and I realize, <laughs> oh yeah, I see. I, I need to be emperor here, <laughs> or or not do it at all. It doesn't work very well. Um, to but, be one of a bunch of equal voices, you know. But it sounds like you have no problem listening to, you know, to. Well, I mean, essentially, technically speaking, they're your subordinates. Like you, you, you don't have a hard time listening to their ideas. You're no, not. I don't think so. You'd have to ask them that, but I don't think so at all. I, I really, you know, and I, and I have such a good team that they, they tend to have better ideas and and, and stuff than I do. So, um, I don't don't have any problem with that, but. Another reason not to retire, you maybe haven't faced this yet, is when your wife explains to you about <laughs> the the old cliche that what retirement is to her is twice the husband at half the income. Right. <laughs> and don't don't you want to go on another road trip? Yeah, you better do that. No, I don't. My dad's, um, you know, still working. You know, I, I don't. I don't see myself. Um, stopping to work, it'll be something different. Like, like, I, like I believe you're a philosophy guy too, like, like me. But I kind of believe in like what the Greeks believe. Like, you live many lives, right? Yeah. And I'm just living this life, whatever this is right now. Like, I, I'm, I'm starting to get more into the development side of of our own projects. That, you know, we've always done, but that that's that's pre- presenting some unique opportunities. And um, I, I want to be like you and split time. You know, in 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 Montana and and then somewhere warmer, but. Um, I, I, I potentially see myself doing some coaching stuff later on, you know, like not anytime soon, but, um, yeah, I just, I just don't see it. Cause I, I, I need purpose and I, and I'm like you, like I, I, I think I took the ADD test and missed it by one. <laughs> so, but I, but I need things to do for sure. Well, um, when you're ready to do some coaching, call me. I will. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I've I'll actually thought about, I thought crossed my mind the other day when I knew I was coming to see you is you should dream up a class that you can come to our Las Vegas classes and teach. I'd love to do that. Because I know yeah. you'd love to do that. Oh, you'd be really good at it. And, you yeah. know, if you can think of a topic or something you mm-hmm. can contribute and you want to come and teach it, 
Let me know. Yeah, we'd, absolutely. We'd love to have you do that. Thing. Yeah, that, that, that would, would be great. Be totally awesome. I love being around you guys. You guys are such a good, positive spirit. Um, everyone's so good. Like, I think Coach Jeff, he's like the most nicest, most like lovable dude you'll ever meet in the contracting world ever. Like, I don't know how you found him, but I'm like, that guy's <laughs> like the nicest guy ever. No, I, coaches have to be nice people, actually. Yeah. He's like next level. They need, yeah. yeah. They need a lot of – it's a very hard position to fill because they have to be very empathetic but yet they have to be uh, draw the line where you draw the line. Yep. They've got to be persuasive, um, and then they've got to learn all the stuff technically. Yeah, you know, because they may have been a contractor all this, but that doesn't mean they know what marketing is or oh, what yeah. margin management is or stuff. So they have a lot to learn, and they've got to be willing to learn. Yep. If I need somebody with twenty years contracting experience, they're probably old. So I'm asking yeah. an old person to go. <laughs> right. Let's relearn a whole bunch of this, okay? Yeah, they're like great. And uh, for some people, that's just not going to work because yeah. I've done this thirty five years. I know how to do it. Well, I can't have them as a coach. No, that's tough for but, sure. Um, so we have a hard time. Sometimes same points a draw. You know, they right. get out of L.A. and get, you know, hang up the bags and go teach other people is a dream for some. For other people, it's a barrier, you know. And, sure. it, and fortunately, we're not trying, we're not real aggressive about growth. We do fine where we are. And, you know, when Fred takes over the business, we'll probably put more emphasis on growth. But um, we can't outgrow our coaches. Yeah. We, you know, and it takes not only a year usually to find one or more. It takes a year for them to develop. We have a development program. They, we have coaches and senior coaches, and only senior coaches have clients. And they got to be a coach for a year. So you get this two-year process, and then sometimes it doesn't work out, and you got to start over again. Mm-hmm. And so you can't all of a sudden have a whole bunch of clients and no coach True. Uh, for them. So we're really governed by our ability to find good coaches. Right. Yeah, it makes, makes total sense. I kind of, when I wrap these things up, because Chris, we already hit the two-hour mark, but um, um, everyone says that comes in here that's successful like yourself, there's common themes. So, like, you didn't specify it, but obviously to get to where you're at and, and what you've done, it's a lot of hard work, right? A lot of hours, yeah, a lot yes. of time being accountable for yourself and others, building building the right team around you. One thing we didn't get to talk about, but but I'm sure that they're out there like having the right mentors and, and, and surrounding yourself by well, well you actually said it by highly talented people. Like mm-hmm. like your senior team is they're highly talented people, you know, to kind of raise you up. Is there anything else that that I'm missing that 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 you would say has been part of your success? No, I don't think so. I think we've pretty much covered it. You're right. We didn't talk about learning from other people, which is, I think, anybody that's had any success in life has learned a lot from other people and been open to learning things. I think that Einstein quote I gave you is really important, the willingness not to go go to your deathbed with your belief, but give me new information, I'll change what I believe. That's a hard thing for people to do. And yeah, that's a real, that's part of that intellectual curiosity. Right. You're wasting your curiosity if you're not going to do anything with it. So I assume if you're intellectually curious, you're going to take that information and go, I'm going to feel differently about that particular yep. belief um, for sure. But um, no, I don't think much else. Um, you did say one thing that was interesting to me about looking for similarities, common patterns among people that have managed to have some success in life. Um, I had a, I have a, good friend named Charlie Garfield, Dr. Charles Garfield. He was an Olympic weightlifter. He worked on the NASA space team as a mathematician. He's got two PhDs, one in physics and one in psychology. 
He's an amazing guy. He's written a bunch of books. But he made his career by studying successful people. And peak performance was the, the theme he had, peak performance. Peak performance, it could be as singers, it could be as athletes, it could be as business people. And he studied like 15 or 1,600 of them in depth and found the common patterns. And he was kind of the first one, a lot of people do this now, but not as rigorously as he did it. Um, and found the common patterns that uh, contribute to people who have some control of their lives, have some success, made some contribution, something like that. And uh, you got to read a couple of his books sometimes because you're thinking well, along those lines yeah. already. You're having people come in here who have had some success in life or done yeah. something in life and seeing common patterns among them. That's what uh, Charlie did for a long time. Much smarter than myself, though, <laughs> for sure. So, but yeah, I just want to say thank you. Like, like I said, uh, we haven't got to spend a ton of time together, but you're definitely someone that's affected how how I've 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 shaped our you know my contracting business and my life, and and you've reinforced a lot of things for me, like you know coming from similar backgrounds and like how we approach things. And I just think you you and your group have made made me a better person. You made Tim a better person. You guys have made Reef Builders you know better. So you, you know. I'd like to thank you again for all that stuff. And, um, you know, I just, I can't say thank you enough for, you know, strolling through our door because uh, it was kind of a uh, an off chance thing. And, you know, when, when I told him, I said, ah, let's go up there, dude. Let's go up to Flagstaff. We can get the hell out of here and do it. And it's been, it's been tremendous for us. So, um, you know, whether... Whether whether it shined through, it has. It's stuck. A lot of things are sticking, and they'll continue to stick, and we'll pass on um, that stuff to our people. And you know, it's it's great to be able to use you guys for our onboard training too. Well, thank you, and the pleasure really is mine. And, and I pass a lot of the same compliments back to, to you. I admire the way you do your business, uh, and I'm I'm a guy remember that sees hundreds and thousands of contractors and and people that do business, and so I would never want you to think that. Oh yeah, I'm one in ten. Right. No, you're one in a thousand. And I the way you go about your business. And if if somehow I had to transform myself to a young man that wanted to go to, <laughs> wanted to go to work for a company, I'd come to work for you. That's the highest compliment um, I think we can get. And I and I genuinely mean that. So Appreciate it's always that. a pleasure to interact with you. Well, you you, you want to get something to eat? Sure. All right. Well, that's the end, guys. Want to say thanks for listening. Uh, once again, if you guys want to leave some feedback, questions, whatever you want to do, um, you can uh, find us on social media at Make the Difference Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Podcast, and Apple, or Pocket Cast and Apple Podcast. Did I get all those right, Chris? <laughs> all right, so until next time, guys, thank you. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon.